With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. More than 78,000 people pass through Logan International Airport in Boston every day. All are subject to passenger security screenings implemented by the Transportation Safety Administration, or the TSA. But according to more than 30 of its own agents, many are singled out not as potential security threats, but because of their religion or race. And in the case of African Americans, how they wear their clothes. If I were to dress a different way, I know I would probably be pulled to the side. And I don't know if it's racially based or whatever, but it's just the way things are. Air traveler Jason Palmer says he's not surprised by the revelation, and he's always been skeptical about the so-called security techniques used by the TSA. Somebody wanted to really do something sinister, they're trained to know to stay calm until it's time to act. Concerns about racial profiling at Logan came to a head last month. This was during a meeting where several officers submitted written complaints. In screenings designed to scan for suspicious behavior cues such as sweating, fidgeting, or avoiding eye contact, agents said minorities, including black, Hispanic, and Middle Eastern passengers, had been routinely pulled aside for searches and questioning. Boston has a pretty uh, uh, bad history around race relations. This does not help. Uh, when there are people coming in and out of the city that are being profiled. You know what you're going to be going through and you either with it or against it. Copying a model developed by the Israelis, the TSA established the so-called behavior detection protocols a few years ago. At the time, proponents said the new program would prevent the racial profiling of passengers. And before these allegations, Logan Airport was actually seen as a good example for security screening practices. In a statement issued by the TSA, a spokesperson said, quote, racial profiling is not tolerated within the ranks of TSA. Profiling is not only discriminatory, but it is also an ineffective way to identify someone's intent on doing harm. If any of these claims prove accurate, we will take immediate and decisive action to ensure there are consequences for such activity. But several recent surveys in America indicate that many U.S. passengers have come to accept the notion of giving up some of their civil liberties for a perception of increased safety. Gary Anthony Ramsey, Press TV, Boston, Massachusetts. The cows, context of white supremacy, justice, gusty renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, today's date, Thursday, January 24th, 2013, so I have been told. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I hope it will be a constructive investment of your evening. Uh, we will be back tomorrow evening. That would be Friday, January 25th. Uh, we are starting brand new book, Melba Patilla Beals, Warriors Don't Cry. Again, she was one of the Little Rock Nine, uh, first group of black students to, quote unquote, integrate the high school in Arkansas, 1957. Uh, again, she kept 
a diary. Her mom also kept an extensive folder of news clippings and all the different things that were happening to them uh, during that first uh, just landmark year. Uh, and I mean, really trifling incidents, uh, just cannot wait. I wish we had done this a while ago, but it was great to do 1984. I think we learned a lot and a lot of people said they enjoyed that as well. But I'm really looking forward to getting started. Uh, Melba Patillo Beals Warriors Don't Cry tomorrow evening. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Audiobook. First segment. Uh, today's broadcast uh, before we even get started, make sure I get my thanks in. Uh, one of our listeners, Princess, she calls in uh, pretty regularly. I uh, think she's on the compensatory call-in most weekends now. And uh, she hooked me up with the book uh, that we're going to investigate for this evening. Uh, always appreciate listeners, listener-supported, folks helping out with the cows to keep us rolling, providing constructive information. Uh, invest if you think the broadcast is constructive. Uh, but definitely wanted to get out our thanks for uh, Princess and uh, getting the book we're going to look at this evening. Uh, our guest for this evening's broadcast, uh, she was brought to my attention. Uh, Bruce Vaughn, she sent me a clip uh, just a couple weeks back, I think towards the end of December. Uh, our guest, she was on Huffington Post, and it was a group of individuals. They were talking about uh, recent legislation that President Obama had passed to make it safer for individuals who are whistleblowers, who are reporting wrongdoing, uh, perhaps even criminal activity, uh, make past legislation to make it safer for them to do so without being retaliated against and that sort of thing. They were discussing that and she was discussing her own personal experience uh, working as a U.S. Customs official and the abuse she suffered, the abuses that she saw being meted out to other individuals, especially black females. And uh, I was surprised that I hadn't heard about uh, her, what happened to her, her experience earlier. Uh, but I investigated, went to the website and uh, thought it would be fantastic to have her on the program. Uh, I guess she uh, just this year, she is launching her National Health and Business Empowerment Tour. Uh, you can get more information visiting her website. Uh, it's linked in the description for the program uh, to check out if she's going to be in an area near you. I would highly encourage uh, listeners, uh, if she's coming to your town, your area, even if it's going to be mildly close, you might have to do a little bit of driving, definitely would be worth your time and energy uh, to support her. She has a lot of great information. Uh, she is the author of 18 books. She is a nationally recognized whistleblower an empowerment and motivational speaker, health and wellness expert, and business coach. She is an expert on many different topics, including family and community empowerment, health, youth, and adult entrepreneurship, writing, publishing, workplace discrimination, whistleblowing, law enforcement, domestic and international traveling, politics, media, beauty, car buying, and selling for women, retirement, just to name a few. Her books and articles are full of content-rich material to help anyone get back in the driver's seat. Uh, some of the books that she's written, a lot of these should appeal to folks who listen to this program, Police Interactions 101, 
a workplace survival guide, flying while black, the failure of homeland insecurity, and her own personal uh, autobiography detailing her experience, uh, much of the misconduct that she uh, faced, documented, and successfully countered uh, the Kathy Harris story, which we'll be talking about in detail today. Uh, as I said, real pleasure to have her on the broadcast. You can visit her website at www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Uh, if you need information uh, on the upcoming tour or any of her books, again, the website, www dot Kathy Harris speaks dot com. Pleasure to have her visiting with us this evening, joining us live, Miss Kathy Harris. Miss Harris, are you with us? Yes, I am, and thank you so very much for having me on the show. Pleasure is ours. We really uh, look forward to uh, hearing from you and uh, all of the fantastic work that you've been doing over the years. Um, I guess before we get started, uh, is there anything that you think? listeners should know about you uh, before we get into the dialogue? Well, not really. Like you said, they can go to my website. Everything is laid out on my website at www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. They can see my upcoming tour. The tour starts next week in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm going to go from Detroit to Ohio to Indianapolis to Chicago. Then I'm going out to New York Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey. Then I'm going to come down to Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland. And then I'm going to hit the Carolinas before I go down to Florida. Then I'm going to come back up and go to New Orleans, out to Texas, and I'm going to end the tour out in California. Outstanding. I know we have listeners in a lot of those different spots. So anybody out there, if you want to get more information, see when she's going to be in your part of uh, the country, visit the website, www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Uh, before we get into the dialogue, you are a black female, just for any of our listeners who haven't seen you before. Yes, I am a black female. Right on. Uh, this broadcast, uh, the cows, context of white supremacy, I have unfortunately concluded that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. I uh, use those two terms as synonyms, uh, have the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you believe that such a system exists, and do you think that's an accurate definition? Yeah, it's pretty accurate, and definitely the system exists, especially in the federal government where I worked for the last 27 years. Right on. I think you have written about that extensively. Uh, we can hop right to it. As I said, the book that we're spending more time on today, uh, The Kathy Harris Story, A Whistleblower's Victorious Journey 
to justice uh, details quite a bit of how that system of racism, white supremacy operates. And I think you just said you said it in the book as well, uh, especially so in the federal government. Uh, and I think that'll play out during the course of the broadcast. Uh, can you kind of, I guess, starting out, uh, kind of go through some of the different phases that you touch on in the book? Uh, you start out just, hey, I'm just a single mom. Uh, have two at the time you had two small children uh, just looking for a way to advance my career I think you start out at the beginning of the book just working as a secretary uh, you said making about seventeen thousand dollars a year and looking for a way to advance your career uh, with US Customs and Border uh, Patrol is that accurate yes I was in Houston Texas and when I got the job at the United States Customs Inspector they told me that I would have to relocate out of Houston Texas to El Paso Texas well of course I was real skeptical of course moving to the border being a single mom moving two daughters down to the Mexican border you know it was a little scary at first now when I became a United States Customs Inspector to me it meant power but at the same time it meant respect because when I was brought up in rural Georgia, my mom told me to go out into into the world, treat people right, though she told me to treat people right. So again, when I put that uniform on from day one, it was all about respect. But when I saw what was going on, what was really going on in the United States Customs Service, it was a shock to me at first, but when I finally got over the shock, you know, I started from the very beginning to do something about it. When you start, and I want to try to share a little bit from the book as well, hopefully motivate people to get a copy of the book, share a copy if you have one, you can get it for friends and what have you, uh, but to kind of read to give some of the details uh, just so people get an understanding of just how ugly all of this was and racist. Um, you start off from the very beginning uh, when you are going through your training uh, and when you are looking to move up through the ranks, you're starting off uh, doing training at Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, and it begins the sexual harassment, rampant sexual abuse of females. Uh, you write, this is in the book, you write, uh, while at the school, these are the trainers, uh, mostly white trainers, they often abused their position of authority with the new female trainees. Many of the male instructors, even married ones, had affairs with other instructors and trainees. My training officer or class coordinator seemed supportive. His primary job was to cover the trainees on the course of material, get them through graduation, and send them back to their respective customs ports. Later on, when I became a federal whistleblower, I found out that my class coordinator had conspired with others to force me out of the customs service by spreading malicious and vicious rumors about me. Now, under the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, the courses consist of open book tests. These open book tests make it impossible for anyone to fail the school. I want to just have listeners to put an asterisk there because we'll come back to that point in a second. But can you kind of give more details around how the sexual abuse, which seems to be a consistent theme in, in your time working with the federal government, but even just from the training in uh, Georgia where this sexual harassment from people that are supposed to be training you? 
Well, from the very beginning, when I first initially went to training, like I said, the trainers abused the women. You know, they touched us inappropriately, and we being women, we being new recruits, who were we going to tell? Everybody was there for a reason. We were there to get these good-paying jobs. I mean, a job paid great money. Within two years, you could be making anywhere from eighty to $90,000. Now, I had been making $17,000 as a secretary, so that was quite a big advancement for me. But like I said, the abuse started out in school, and once I left the school, I found out that the abuse was prevalent all throughout, not just my agency, but throughout the federal government. Is uh, is it appropriate, I just want to, for context, uh, how old were you when you started out with the training? Um. It was 1988, so 19, I'm 56 now, so do the math, um, 56 now, it was 1988. Okay, okay. But everybody can kind of do the math. Okay. Uh, I'm just pointing that out because I feel like for a lot of people listening to the program, uh, females that are younger, uh, at a younger age at that time, I think, it would be difficult. You already touched on the financial incentives. You have an opportunity to make $80,000, uh, particularly being a single mom with two children, uh, making $17,000. And you said within two years' time, you could be making $80,000. That, in addition uh, to being younger and maybe not informed about how to counter, neutralize uh, sexual misconduct on the job? Like at, at that time, did you, had you had anyone talk to you about how to deal with sexual harassment on the job? Not really. Um, what I had only witnessed was when I left home, I went in the military. And the reason I think I was pretty strong is because I was in the military with these MPs. I worked with the MPs, but even though I was a administrative specialist with the MPs, so I kind of knew how to carry myself. I saw a lot of abuse take place for the first time, a lot of injustices for the first time when I was in the military. So that always weighed back on my mind what happened in the military. And like I said, once I got out of the military, I ended up in U.S. Customs, and I found out the same things that happened in the military actually happened in the federal government, particularly U.S. Customs. Wow. Wow. I guess knowing what you know now, uh, what are some things that you think you could have done in the, in the training phase uh, to maybe neutralize the sexual harassment without impairing your career advancement in any way? Well, the way that I blew the whistle, the way that everything played out was, you know, a godsend. I don't think I did anything. I don't think if I would have did anything differently, anything, we would have had any kind of different results. So the fact that the way that everything played out, it was all, you know, in design arc um, because everything came out okay. And, again, there, if I nothing, you know, basically we couldn't have not couldn't have changed anything. Bottom line. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't have changed it. Bottom line, what I'm saying is I would not have changed a thing. I was I was young. 
I was a new recruit. So, again, I did not have any power to do anything about anything. And the reason I waited all those years to blow the whistle was for a reason, because if I had blown the whistle from day one, you know, I would have never have been able to last in that agency. So I saw the abuses take place over the years. I waited till I got to Atlanta, and then that's when I came forward and did what I needed to do. You uh, you state in the book that most of the individuals that were doing the training uh, in Georgia, most of them were white men, correct? Yeah, they were mostly, probably all of them, 99.9% of them, yes, were white men. Okay. Uh, and you said uh, that, I guess, when your group was going through, you had 25 uh, trainees. Uh, seven of them were females. The rest were males. Uh, how many of the trainees were black? Um, only a handful. Matter of fact, me and another girl, we were the only blacks in our class. So it was only a few blacks that was actually going through the school at that time. And most of the blacks who went through the school were flunked out in the school. Even people with master degrees and doctorate degrees actually flunked the course down at Glencoe, Georgia. They flunked out. Wow, that when I made the asterisk uh, for listeners and telling them to kind of keep that uh, in mind, uh, I wanted to make sure we covered that as well because I thought that was real significant. Uh, you shared that uh, the tests that you all had to pass uh, to complete the training, uh, these were open book and ostensibly is supposed to be impossible uh, to fail this school. Uh, but as you just touched on, that was not the case. Uh, for black people, non-white people who went through the training, and even though it's not even that many of them apparently who were going through the training at the time, uh, this is uh, the same page uh, in the book, the Kathy Harris story, uh, where you go into more detail about this. Uh, you write, uh, even though most of the trainees felt unsure about how to capture and handcuff a violator, they were hoping to get additional on-the-job training at their designated U.S. Customs ports. But as many ports, especially in Atlanta, that training never came. Before the open book tests, the failure rate at the training facility was high, especially for blacks and Hispanics. They were not expected to survive the training. Uh, they were not expected to survive the training. The gossip around the training school was about how many black and Hispanic employees were failing the courses. Blacks with master's and doctorate degrees could not pass various stages of the training. We would talk, joke, and laugh with someone night one night, and the next day the person would be gone. Before the open book tests, considering the tactical exercises and written comprehension tests in the academy, an equivalent number of whites should have also failed the course. However, most whites received a passing grade even at times, to their own surprise. Really important segment, I thought. Um, this, as you already touched on, was some years ago. Do you have any knowledge if this has changed? Has, has anything been done to kind of rectify this seeming act of racism to keep non-white people from passing through the training stage? No, but right now, because it is open book test, from my understanding, a lot of people are able to pass the course now because it is open. Like I say, you sit there and you write the answers down. It's open book, so it should be hard to really fail now if you go through the training. Hmm. What 
because it was open book then, I guess, do you have an idea of what specifically was being done to eliminate these potential black recruits? No, I mean, a lot of things in the government can be done behind the scenes. It's simply that, you know, they could let a certain number of blacks pass, a certain number of blacks not pass, you know. So the federal government, that's just how it works. I mean, we weren't privy to who was grading the test. We weren't privy to those people and, and how they were doing everything. So we, we had no information about that, but a lot of the people, like I said, had master degree, they had doctor degree, and they could not pass that course. Wow. This seems like, I don't know if it's changed or what have you, but at least from the time that you're writing about it, it seems like if a white person or several of these white people, if they picked out a black person, a non-white person, and said, we want to make sure that whoever this person is, we want to make sure that they don't, they don't complete the training successfully. It seems like it would be pretty easy to do that, even if they were, you know, trying their best, keeping up, studying the books. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Later on, some people who actually worked down there had told people back at other places that that's exactly what they did. They were able to flunk certain people out of the school. Context of white supremacy. Mm. Uh, the Again, this theme uh, just running together, uh, rampant sexual abuse, abuse of females, especially black females, and the racism, uh, you again go back to, in addition to what we just touched on, the sexual abuse. I want to read this chapter just so folks, again, get a, get a clear picture of what was happening. Uh, you write, and I'm assuming this is a white male instructor, uh, you write uh, that this instructor asked asked you to... I'll read it. This instructor asked me to stick my finger out. Then he grabbed my hand, stuck my finger into his mouth, and sucked on it in front of the whole class. Shocked, I quickly snatched my finger out of the instructor's mouth. Thereafter, I was very uncomfortable in his presence. I tried to make sure I was never alone with him. During the rest of my training, I intentionally avoided contact with this man. However, one day, when we were on the firing shooting range, he came up to me and groped me. Without warning, he reached into my back pants pocket where I kept my bullets and grabbed a handful of bullets and told me to stop wearing my pants so tight. I was appalled. First of all, it was common practice for everyone to keep bullets in their back pants pocket. Secondly, the uniforms, especially the shirts, were cut for a man's body, not a woman's, so they tended to fit snugly in certain places. Thirdly, and most importantly, he had no right to touch me. If he needed some of my bullets, all he had to do was ask me for them. I did not report the incident because I was a trainee and a single mother who had two small children that depended on me. In hindsight, I know now that the firearms instructor was counting on me, not reporting him. However, the day would come when I would be in position to embarrass him as he had humiliated me at the training academy. Uh, again, like I said, this is rampant, consistent theme throughout the book, just sexual abuse of coworkers, passengers, just widespread. Uh, this was, was this sort of thing happening with other female trainees? And if so, did you all have any dialogue about this? 
Yes, it was happening to a lot of females. And by the way, that instructor was an African-American. He was one of the only African-American instructors that was actually there. Wow. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Pitiful. Pitiful. What were some of the dialogues that you, I guess, were having with some of the other female trainees about this sort of abuse, and were they sharing similar stories? Well, yeah, everybody was really, really uncomfortable. But like I said, we all were new trainees. We had seen all of these people leaving because they had either flunked out of school or for some reason just quit and walked out. We did have people to actually just quit and walk out because it was too much pressure for them. And, again, you know, we were there to try to pass the school to get back home. Everybody wanted to get back home. I wanted to get back home to my kids. So we were just there for a reason. So we put up with it. Wow. Had there, had you heard any rumors about uh, this particular, the black male instructor? Had there been any rumors or people whispering anything about this guy being a sexual predator? Yes, there were a lot. Of, later on, I found out there was a lot of rumors about him. He was in Miami for a while, and there was a lot of things that he did that he got away with. And like I said, when I finally transferred to Miami and met him, I was able to embarrass him in front of five female supervisors when I told him to try the same thing with me that he tried in training. So he was so embarrassed he walked away while all the women laughed. Uh, Before uh, move forward, you obviously passed the training course and moved on to El Paso where same thing continue. Uh, Before I moved on, I just want to read this final. uh, This is how you close this chapter of the book. Uh, You write, at every turn, blacks and Hispanics were expected to fail or quit. Non-white students who were not systematically flunked from the training school were frequently eliminated from the federal work system, especially law enforcement, without just cause. In retrospect, I realize these exclusionary tactics were used by the Customs Service to weed out black and Hispanic employees. The non-whites who managed to eventually enter the system were held back through promotions, negative work reviews, job harassment, etc., or eliminated at the next level by a mostly white chain of command. Racial and sexual profiling and discrimination occurs quite often at all federal law enforcement agencies. Racial profiling within the federal law enforcement agencies was the accepted norm. The message conveyed to blacks continually and mercilessly was and is giving your best is not enough. I quickly concluded that, yes, the customs inspector job paid a very good salary. However, what a person had to endure, especially blacks and Hispanics, eventually extracted an even higher price, loss of respect, integrity, and self-esteem. Really important point. Um, and this will come up again. You'll be talking about this. I wanted to get more into detail once you get to uh, once we get to the Atlanta portion of the book. But as I said, you obviously passed the training 
uh, you move to El Paso uh, to work uh, customs and and border patrol where a lot of these same themes uh, come up. And I think you start immediately with this section of the book talking about how they didn't even have very many uh, females uh, working at this particular up at, at El Paso. Is that correct? Yes, they had three African-American females that were there, but, of course, it was mostly Hispanic males that actually worked on the border. Okay. Uh, I know that this has come up on the program pretty regularly. We have uh, had people call in from the Texas area and most of the areas that we're talking about, Texas, Florida, Atlanta, and I think some of the confusion has come up. Sometimes they feel like individuals who – say that they are quote-unquote Hispanic or classified as quote-unquote Hispanic, that a lot of times these people, uh, they can function and be accepted as white. Um, Just from your experience when you were working at El Paso, a lot of these people that were so-called Hispanic, did you ever get the feeling that some of these people could be accepted as white? Yes, and a lot of them were white, uh, even though a a big percentage of them were Hispanic, there were several white uh, male inspectors that actually worked there also. So, you know, yeah, they were definitely present on the Mexican border. Okay, okay. Um, You talk about this, um, as I said, rampant theme uh, in the book, and you talk about the way that you saw the sexual abuse of females, how that played out uh, at this station in El Paso. Well, what I saw in El Paso, it was once I got over the initial shock that we were able to do what they told us to do, um, it bothered me, and I started kind of reporting it up the chain of command. But what they made us do was any time a pretty Hispanic woman would come through the border, they had some kind of rule called an inspector courtesy. They always made her get out of the car, open up the hood of her car, open up the trunk of her car so all the males could see her. Then they would have her go into the secondary area. They would actually send her over to the secondary area so the other guys can actually interview her because she was pretty. Then the guys would try to come on to the female. They would ask for a phone number. Now, if the woman resisted, they told us, the female customs inspectors, to take them to the search room and make them strip totally naked in order to humiliate and embarrass them. How frequent, if you had to, if you had to gauge, how frequent was this sort of misconduct? Was this something that was happening once a week or two times a month? How frequent was this occurring? Ten to fifteen times a day. Wow. Wow. And this was just, this was standard operating procedure. Like, this was just known. This was not a shock to anybody that this was known to be happening on 10 to 15 times a day and no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. The supervisor sat there and watched it. His supervisor sat there and watched it. Yeah, 10 to 15 times a day. Wow. Wow. You, I think another component in the book, uh, you wrote that also you frequently witnessed various male customs inspectors provoking male travelers into physical confrontations. Is that true? Yeah, they would force the males into confrontations and slam them to the cement, you know, 
sometimes bust out their teeth, bust their lips or whatever, but they would do this to the males. You know, a lot of time, a lot of the inspectors ended up with messed up knees and everything, but that's just what they did. They always did this to male travelers just because they didn't like how the males looked. Wow. Why? What sort of, because I feel like this, I've heard that before. I think folks, if they are listening to the broadcast, this should sound familiar. What sort of things would they do to try to provoke these confrontations? Well, just say things to him. Say things to him that any ordinary man is not going to take. And when he would, you know, kind of get loud, then they would just, you know, three, four, five guys would just go and get him and take him all the way to the ground. They handcuff him. In the airports, they would actually put them in a search room and leave them there for like five hours by themselves, just leave them handcuffed in the search room. That was the practice they did in airports. Or they would just call the police, have the police come and get them, you know, because we have a relationship with the police. Anytime we had a rape uh, traveler, we could just call the police, and the police is the one that actually just took the mail to jail. Disgraceful. Mm. With the uh, use of this standard operating procedure happening 10 to 15 times a day with the uh, – the courtesy of taking these, what they call a courtesy of taking these uh, female uh, passengers that are crossing the border. This is from, uh, I'm thinking, Juarez City in Mexico, crossing to El Paso, yeah. Texas. Uh, El Paso and Juarez City, they were coming in from Juarez. Yes, they were coming in driving a car, or if they were coming in walking, either way, they would pull over all the pretty, they would just look through the lines for pretty women. And even if the women were with the fathers, you know, and it's a Mexican um, custom, you know, fathers really protect their daughters. But they would do this. They would ask for the phone numbers from the women, and they would do all of this stuff in front of their fathers. Mm. Were you able to observe uh, when they were doing uh, this, quote-unquote, inspector's courtesy, sexually harassing these females uh, when their fathers or husbands or whomever uh, in the vehicle, when they're catching this, did you see how they were responding or did, it, did you see at any point if any of them, you know, made an effort to try to stop this or to intervene? No, they just put they, – they were so embarrassed and ashamed the males always just put their head down. They just put their head down in shame because, again, they could just have that male at any moment out in a search room naked himself, and he knew that. He was just powerless. And you all were armed, to make sure that's clear as well. You all were armed doing this, uh, doing the Border Patrol. Is that correct? Yes. Um, we weren't Border Patrol. We were U.S. Customs Service inspectors, and yes, we were armed. Everybody had weapons. U.S. Customs. I'm sorry. U.S. Customs. Uh, can you say it for me one more time? U.S. Customs and U.S. Customs Service inspectors. Services. Now they are yes. called Customs and Border Protection Officers. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Wow. Disgraceful disgraceful uh, and it, again for listeners this should sound very familiar same tactics same pattern of misconduct abusing degrading humiliating black non-white people um you talked about in the book and i also thought this was very important uh you said uh, as 
a female customs inspector, if you did not support this behavior, if you're seeing this and saying, hey, wait a minute, this is incorrect, we shouldn't be doing this. If you appear to be going against them, they had punishment for you too. Is that accurate? Yes, they had punishment for me too. When I refused to do it, okay, two females had to be in the room with the female. When we told her to strip naked, two females had to witness the um, interrogation. Now, one female would talk and the other female would witness. Now, after I realized what they were doing, I would always witness. I wouldn't talk. You know, I wouldn't do the interrogation, but the guys would tell me to do it, and if I didn't do it, if I made the other female do it, then when I came out of the search room, they would, the other female would squirrel on me. She would tell the guys, okay, she didn't do it. So when I worked the midnight shift, with five, you know, not too many people worked on the midnight shift, maybe, maybe five other inspectors, but when I worked the midnight shift, because I didn't force the female to strip naked, they forced me to search vehicles by myself, which was very, very unsafe. You know, being in a secondary area by yourself, if a carload of guys come up, and you're there by yourself. So it was a very dangerous situation, and they forced me to do it all the time. Is that in breach of their policy uh, to have uh, anyone, female or male, out doing these searches at midnight uh, just alone? Is that a breach of their policy? Of course. Everything they did was a breach of their policies. They had rules and regulations in the books, on the books, but they never followed the rules and regulations. You're always supposed to have two or three people in the secondary area at nighttime. And you said this used to happen to you on a regular basis. They would frequently have you out doing the, the midnight patrol by yourself. Yes, because I resisted forcing women to take their clothes off. I wouldn't do it. I might have done it a couple of times, but when I realized it was wrong, I stopped doing it. And, again, they knew I wasn't going to do it, so they was always punishing me. Mm. Wow. You you talk about how this uh, specific post uh, at El Paso, Texas, uh, you use the term, quote unquote, a breeding ground uh, for male supervisors who had been charged with sexual harassment uh, as opposed to when a complaint or accusation was lodged against, the, against these particular males as opposed to terminating them or demoting them, kicking them out of the agency. They would just transfer them to this post uh, in El Paso. Is that accurate? Yes, they would actually transfer them to any Mexican port on the border, you know, because that was punishment for them. We'll send them to the border. So, yeah, so the El Paso, Texas, we had a bunch of supervisors who were actually sent there because they had committed sexual harassment against other women throughout the ages. Wow. Context of white supremacy, disgusting. I'm even remembering because I've been, I've crossed uh, the border at El Paso in the Juarez City, so I'm just, I'm remembering. I've gone through this port. Um, if any of the folks uh, listening in, if you all have questions uh, for Miss Kathy Harris, uh, the number to dial seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six. And the code is five six four nine four three pound.
press star six. If you have questions uh, you'd like to ask, I'll give out the number a few more times as we roll through the broadcast. But again, 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have questions. Uh, for folks listening in, you uh, wrote in the book, you stayed uh, at this uh, station, uh, El Paso, Texas. You were there for uh, about 18 months uh, before you uh, were transferred and moved to Miami uh, to continue your work. Uh, what would you say to listeners uh, who would say, hey, you know, Miss Harris, you, you went through the training uh, and you saw blatant sexual abuse, uh, experienced it yourself, heard that it was happening to other female trainees, uh, that they were being racist, they were purposely weeding out black, non-white candidates. Uh, once you've been on this job for 18 months, year and a half, uh, you've continued to see blatant misconduct, uh, misuse of you, uh, blatant abuse of non-white people, females trying to cross the border. Why stay with this agency? You know, there's, you, you shouldn't even have stayed. What would your response be to that? Why you said I shouldn't have stayed? Right. If someone were to ask you that question, why did you stay with this agency given all the misconduct that you observed? Well, like I say, you know, it was a good job. It was a good job, and the reason I transferred off the border was to better grounds. At least I thought it would be better grounds. Of course, working on the border, that's probably one of the worst places that anyone can work in the U.S., but I transferred thinking that it was going to be better in Miami, Florida. At least in Miami, Florida, we weren't on the border. We were actually in the airport. Again, you know, it was a good job. Why not stay on it? It was a good job. I was raising my kids. I was providing for my kids. I was trying to move up the ladder because they told you in Glencoe, Georgia, if you really want to move up in the agency, you need to transfer around. You need to transfer to other places and get all the experience. So I really was trying to move up the ladder. Wow. So I, I wanna... can make a difference. I wanted to move up the ladder so I can make a difference. That's what I was trying to do. And being a single mom, super, super important. Um, I want to get a little bit of, of some of the details in terms of what you experienced in Miami, and then we'll take uh, some callers as well. Uh, this is you move into Miami Airport, uh, and you write in the book, next chapter, uh, even though the Miami airport was one of the biggest international airports in the country, I was still able to observe firsthand how black women were being falsely detained. I observed policies and procedures and noticed that the majority of the passengers being pulled over, targeted or singled out at that time were black women. There was always talk amongst the customs inspectors on how customs went after black women and how it was an unwritten rule. However, I was in no position to do anything about this unwritten rule, but it always nagged me at the back of my mind. I simply wanted to get the training that I needed to excel in my job and advance in my career while spending valuable time with my family. It would later be proven by a customs survey, a GAO report, that black women were the smallest group of international travelers and the least likely to be found with contraband. However, 
they were 20 times more likely to be searched than white or Hispanic women. The report entitled Better Targeting of Airline Passengers for Personal Searches Could Produce Better Results confirmed that the U.S. Customs Service subjected black women international travelers to abusive pat-down inspections, intrusive strip searches, invasive cavity searches, x-rays, monitored bowel movements, and unwarranted prolonged detentions, which sometimes lasted for up to four days so that U.S. customs inspectors could make more overtime money. In Miami, these black women were taken into public restrooms and made to defecate while these armed female customs inspectors stood guard over them. They left the toilet doors opened while other federal workers and airline workers passed in and out, observing and laughing at them. If a passenger refused to use the public restroom with the customs inspectors watching, customs would simply handcuff the black woman to a chair next to search rooms in the front of the public until she agreed. It was the norm to see an innocent black female traveler handcuffed to a chair, which could be viewed by all the international travelers as they passed through the port of Miami. These women were even detained in this fashion, sometimes for four hours to eight hours in an entire eight hour shift or longer. The customs inspectors did not care because they would remain on shift and make overtime money. Eventually, I found out the reasons for all these detentions were so my coworkers could make overtime money. The details, the details. Um, why? Wow, just do you, anything you would like to elaborate on that? I feel like it's so shocking; it's almost difficult to even pick up. But anything you would like to to elaborate on that, Miss Harris? Well, you just about said everything now. It went from a paso to looking at and witnessing 15 women a day. In Miami, I actually conducted those same interrogations about 40 times a day. Even though there was a lot of more women on duty, that's just how often they were pulling over these women. And again, as the women were handcuffed to the chairs for four to eight hours, when passengers came in, they always asked us, why are those black women handcuffed to those chairs over there? They were handcuffed there to force them into allowing us to give them an abusive pat-down inspection or an um, humiliating strip search. So they said no. So they, again, they just kept the women handcuffed to the chairs. And you said 40 times a day. Yes, I went in and witnessed 40 times a day. Remember now, by the time I left El Paso, I was no longer doing the searches. And what was so shocking when I got to Miami, when I saw a female insert her gloved finger, of course, you know, we wore gloves. When I saw a female insert her gloved 
finger up a woman's anus area, I was shocked because I did not understand. I did not know that we had enough power to actually do that to a woman. Wow. Did you uh, did you inquire? Like, did you go to your supervisors to say, "Hey, is this? I don't remember. Is this in the manual? Are we, is this something that we're supposed to be doing? Some sort of anal cavity search of someone?" No, I talked to my other coworkers, people who have seniority, people who have been there for a while, and they said that they've always done that. And I knew from day one that we had too much power because, again, that kind of inspection could have, should have taken place at a hospital, not at a federal facility. And so if you... If you're a black female, you're coming through and they say, oh, we're, we're detaining you, uh, you're going to be subject to some sort of, of pat down or strip search. If you refuse uh, or whatever grounds they say that, you know, anal cavity search, you refuse, you're publicly handcuffed uh, for hours, four hours, eight hours. You could be detained indeterminate amount of time, correct? Yes, yes. Wow. Wow. What what grounds would they come up with? Like, what would it be uh, with regards to them even having a reason or an excuse to begin this in the first place? Well, there was never any probable cause. Probable cause is when maybe like a dog might alert positive on someone that they may be carrying drugs. There was never any probable cause. It was always mere suspicion. Basically, between me and you, the reason they did it was the women wore Afrocentric hairstyles. They wore Afrocentric clothes. They had uh, Caribbean accents from Africa and Caribbean accents. And basically, back then, that's why they were doing all the inspections, simply because they had these, they were Afrocentric looking. That's why. So when you say Afrocentric. As long as they were doing it. Now, as long as they were doing these inspections, it looked like to their supervisor that they were actually working. So the thing about U.S. Customs Service, if your supervisor sees you working, you get attaboys, you get time off, and you get promotions. So what they do, they target a certain group of individuals to harass, to single out, to target, you know, and interrogate so it looks like they're working. So when it comes time to do an appraisal, they're going to rate these white males high, as you know, as an, with their appraisal. Um, uh, I for for listeners, um, it was ugly experience reading this book. I think I've been to a lot of the, the spots that you were talking about, the travel spots. Anyway, I've been to, to Miami Airport as well, and I know uh, that's a popular airport for people who are flying to the Caribbean, obviously, because it's so close. So I would assume a lot of people from uh, Jamaica, uh, Dominican Republic, black people from these areas are coming into Miami. They're coming in through the airport there. So I'm assuming a lot of these people uh, are being detained. A lot of black females from these areas are being searched, patted down, whatever, and especially the Caribbean black female, that stigma, oh, you're bringing in drugs, you're probably a courier of some sort. I'm assuming it's a lot of black people from these areas, the islands uh, in the Caribbean, are being stopped and detained. Uh, just from your observation, was that true? Yes, it was mostly Jamaica and Africa, Haiti, uh, like you said, other Caribbean countries, but especially Jamaica, especially Africa. 
uh, and other um, Haitian. You know, down in Miami, you have a lot of Haitians. So, like I say, any time they had an Afrocentric-looking hairstyle, when they heard the person speak with an accent, they automatically would be pulled over. And profitable. I think that's super important as well. I had my highlight like double time uh, on that one, the fact that doing this, practicing racism, uh, especially against these black females, uh, that, hey, this is an easy way I can get some overtime. Just make sure we snatch up 40 different black females uh, through the course of the day, and if they don't want to do it, fine. We can detain them, handcuff them, keep them here for hours uh, locked up, and we'll get overtime pay. Hooray. I'll get my paycheck next week, and I'll have a bonus, and we'll get to mistreat uh, dozens of black females in the process. Um, I, that should be another pattern for listeners frequently, the system of racism, white supremacy. They will make it profitable to abuse dark people. Um, also wanted to make sure I pointed out, you said that this this pattern of the public humiliation and degradation uh, when they would handcuff the black females publicly uh, so that just folks that are walking through, they could see them handcuffs sitting there. They would not do this to white passengers. Is that accurate? Yes. They was rows and rows and rows, at least 12 to 15 black women at a time. What was the procedure if it was a white person uh, who was detained and they were going to be hand like if they refused the strip search or what have you, if they were going to be handcuffed, what would be the procedure if it was a white person? Well, the same thing, but I rarely ever saw a white person go through that down in Miami. It was always, always, always black women. Wow. And according to the statistics that have come out, it is uh, not black females who are most likely to be the ones who are carrying contraband. It, it tends to be white women who are carrying some sort of contraband at a higher rate than black females. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Also, Hispanic males coming from Panama and other Hispanic countries, that's who was actually carrying the drugs. And a lot of white guys, white guys have called radio shows and laughed about the fact that U.S. Customs was singling out uh, black women because they said all they had to do was walk through the airport with drugs hanging out of their pockets. They knew that they weren't going to be targeted. They weren't going to be pulled over. Hmm. System of white supremacy. Embarrassing. Uh, we will hit the phone lines. Uh, i Make sure we have other information from the book I want to touch on, but I will give folks an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, the number again, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Uh, press star 6 if you have questions. Uh, the person that dialed in, last four digits, 9458. 9458, your line should be open. Did you have a question for Ms. Harris? Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hi, uh, I'm a first-time caller. Um, been listening to your show for a minute. and very intrigued, very fascinated by it. I think you're a pioneer. And uh, I've been listening to, uh, to the guest and her experiences with... Uh, Border Patrol and everything like that. I recently got back from a cross-country trip to Atlanta. I'm from Los Angeles, 
and I was on Greyhound, and we rode through Texas, and we were actually, uh, the bus was actually stopped uh, by Border Patrol twice in Texas, and they came on the bus and uh, asked everyone for, uh, if, they, if we were citizens and, the, you know, the, everybody that was Hispanic, because most of the people on the bus were either Hispanic or um, or African Americans. It was a few whites on there, but um, anyway, they pulled a, a few people off. I guess they didn't have their IDs, and, you know, we had to continue the going along with it. But I've been riding Greyhound for years, and this is the first time I've ever seen it. Um, this is the first time we've ever been just stopped like that. They took all the luggage off the bus, everything. So, I mean, I don't know if uh, if, if what they're doing is, is valid or uh, if they call themselves justified by, uh, by doing this to uh, people, uh, talking about homeland security and this and that, when, I mean, you know, most of us live here. The Hispanics that are riding through Texas, I mean, they're back and forth, and that's been established for years. So it's like uh, this is uh, an elevated level of harassment. Um, and as far as her experience as being a woman in that setting with a bunch of, of white males who are getting extra privileges, I mean, I feel for it, but it's like can we be surprised? This has been going on for years. This is the same thing that's been going on for years, um, not just with that position, but with any position. Uh, when I applied for L.A. County, a county job here in Los Angeles, uh, I was one of the only handful of black, young black men I was applying. And when I took the exam, I noticed it, was a, it got pretty extensive for the English section. We had to actually uh, write paragraphs, and we had to actually use... Uh, you know, uh, proper English, and we had to show that we can that we can express ourselves in written, in written form. And I'm looking at the a lot of the foreigners that's there. I'm like, well, maybe this is an advantage for me, since I'm you know I'm a black male. We have a good command of the English language. I'm like, maybe this is an advantage uh, for us over everyone else. But when you look at the numbers, it doesn't it doesn't prove to be that way. So um, I just wanted to express that. I really wanted to. Just uh, shout out to Gus, man. What you doing is, what you doing is great, man. And it's gonna keep on expanding. Um, I'm out. I'm gonna call in some other time. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you kindly, sir. Um, I guess before I hit the next caller, did you want to respond to anything that the caller shared, Miss Harris? Well, naturally, yes. Well, naturally, he's right on it when he was talking about the things that's going on under Homeland Security. Now, Homeland Security came on the scene in 2003, and I'm sure we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But basically, that's why I wrote the other book. Now, you're reading from my story, my book, but what he needs to do is he's going to be out in the world dealing with everything, he needs to have a good understanding of what's going on on the Homeland Security. So he needs to read my other book, The Failure of Homeland Insecurity. That is the book he needs to read, and other people need to read that book so they can understand what's going on with Homeland Security. You can get information uh, on that book. Just visit the website, www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Uh, if you want to get more information, you will see that book there, Failure of Homeland Insecurity. 
thank you again for the call. I appreciate the input. Uh, person that called in uh, from the Bronx, regular caller, uh, your line should be open. If you had a question for Ms. Harris, your line should be open. Greetings, uh, Gus and uh, Ms. Harris and the callers. Um, uh, you, you just jumped right in. Uh, this has been a very informative um, informative discussion. I appreciate um, listening to it. It gave me some insight to uh, some things I was wondering about. Or just, um, well, I saw an interesting, uh, I've got two questions for you. I've got, um, I've got um, yeah, I saw the other day on the news that um, black, they were saying that black females are um, 90%, like, I, I forget exactly what the statistic was, but they were saying that black, black young, um, young black females were like, I'm here in New York City, and I'm not, not, black females are like top of the list as far as ADHD um, new uh, cases or whatever. And um, it just seems to me like it's like just like a, a terrifying kind of environment to be in and to identify as a black, a black person, but you know, a black female particularly um, as well. Um, and... Uh, um, I was just wondering if you knew anything about that. Well, yes, I'm also a health and wellness expert, and what's going on with a lot of the black women now, in 1996, uh, they started creating genetically modified organisms, genetically modified foods. So if you have a person in your family that's been eating these foods since 1996, then naturally they're going to have some kind of bipolar disorder. So that is what I'm trying to educate people about on my tour. So when I come to New York, you need to make sure that you have your family member, friends, and neighbors there so I can educate you about what's going on with the food in the country and all the big depression that's going on in black women out there. Well, yeah, I, I, I just strictly do organic. I was in California for like uh, like like 10 years or something, and I got... I, I I don't know. I, I turned on to the organic thing, and my family members are kind of like, eh. But yeah, I'm trying to teach by example. But um, right on. Um, another question I had was um, I I'll make a quick comment in the question. I I went to the dentist the other day, and um, I haven't been to the dentist in like 25 years or something. You know, since I was a youngster. And um, because I, I, I kind of try to do the holistic thing, but, you know, some things, like if you've got a decaying tooth, you've got to go to the dentist. So I went to the dentist, and um, it was just interesting because I go in, you know, it's my old neighborhood in the South Bronx, and, um, you know, it's a black neighborhood. So I go into the dentist. All of the receptionists and everything, they're all, like, non-black, non-white, like so-called Hispanic females or um, whatever, and all females, too. And then all the doctors are like white, you know, like I think Jews or white, white, they're white, white men, you know. And it was just interesting because it's like, you know, they're not employing anybody from the neighborhood. All the all the customers are black people, you know. And then uh, and then you know I I get the procedure done and it went a lot you know easier than I thought it would. You know, they shot my face full of dope and everything, you know. And um, and I'm just thinking, I'm like. I'm like, they're shooting me up with dope, you know. They're shooting me up with something cane, you know. 
and then uh, and then um, and then you know there's codeine in the market and everything. And it's like, and I'm thinking about I'm in the South Bronx, and like most of the men in jail are probably there for like you know slinging crack or whatever. And it's like such a fine line between like you know these white guys that are administering this, these drugs to me, and then the men on the street, or that I mean the, the males on the street who are administering drugs to people that think they need them. And uh, I, it just kind of blew my mind. Just you know like they don't offer any of the legitimate jobs. Um, administering drugs to black men, and then they herd the black men into this position where I guess they feel like they need to administer the drugs illegally, and it just you know. But um, I was just wondering because like I've been feeling a little bit. I, I kind of was kind of jovial and kind of like I was kind of upbeat after the um, the procedure was done, and I was very talkative and kind of like relaxed. But then I I, I kind of felt like uh, I kind of crashed a little bit. At the end of the day, I kind of felt like a little bit weaker than I usually do, and then like, and I, I just kind of thought about that—that that, um, I kind of felt a little bit weakened after it. And I was wondering if you knew anything about that novocaine, and and uh, you know, is that is that is that just me, or did it kind of like, did I kind of um, deplete my you know immune system, and perhaps is there something I could uh, take to replenish? Uh, thank you. Well, basically, you need to get involved in the community and work within your community about, you know, the fact that the doctors and the dentists and all of these people are white in your neighborhood. Uh, there's a lot of things going on with medication. I've got several books out on community organizing. Just go on my website at www.angels. Press.com. I, again, I've got several books I, that cover a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about, the medication, what's going on with the medication, what's going on in the communities and everything. So the goal is to learn more information that you have now. And, again, my advice is to just try to organize within the community. And, again, you know, read my books because my book will lay out an action plan on what it is you need to do to empower yourself. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, next person that dialed in, uh, last four digits. Oh, this is Princess. Thank you for the book. Glad she was able to dial in. Princess, your line should be open. Hi, I guess. Uh, hi, Mrs. Harris. I just had a. How are you? Um, you're doing fine. I just had a few questions. I just wanted to know whether or not um, you can share specifically uh, what steps did you take in confronting people or individuals throughout the organization uh, that you worked for, uh, just only because I'm trying to do some things in, in regards to um, uh, what had taken place with me uh, at my um, prior job. So I just wanted to get as much information or resources uh, as possible, things that I need to look at in regards to seeking uh, help for myself. Well, basically, the reason I was successful is because of what was happening to the women. You got to understand, it wasn't an individual complaint, and you're probably by yourself unless you could file a class action complaint. Now, you only need four people to file a class action complaint. So, if you could get four of your coworkers just going through the same thing, you guys really need to file a class action lawsuit. The reason I was successful, 
I made what was going on in the U.S. Customs Service a community issue. So after going up the chain of command, they started coming after me. So I went to the community. I went to civil rights leaders. I went to other leaders in the community, legislators, media entities, and I made it a community issue because, you know, they should get involved with what was going on with these women, even though I was witnessing it. It's their, it's their problem. So I made it a community issue, and you can make yours a community issue. You need to get involved with the community. There are people in the community going through the same thing that you're going through. Get with them and build a support system around what's going on with you because chances are whoever you have this issue with, it might be someone across the United States that's working for the same agency that got the same issue. Now, again, I've written three books on workplace abuse. So go to my website. My books are only two fifty a piece, two ninety nine a piece. They're e-books, but I wrote three books on workplace abuse. So you really need to read my book, Workplace Survivor Guide: Discrimination One on One, Volume One and Two. So check out my books on my website at www. Angels with an S, angelspress.com. Read my books, and my book will lay out an action plan on exactly what you need to do. Okay. And I wanted to know, um, what was the turning point before you, uh, quote, blew the whistle on your um, coworkers? I'm glad you I'm glad you asked me that because when I got to Atlanta after everything that happened in Miami, when I got to Atlanta, I came to work one day and I had heard that they had a black woman at the hospital. See, now you ain't heard the whole thing about the abuse that was happening, even though you think Miami was bad. Now in Atlanta they were taking women, they would escort the women to a government vehicle. They would escort the women with her hands in the back of them, not in the front of them. Now, if they took white men to the hospital, they were always, or if they just took white men who had actually been caught with drugs, they would allow them to put a coat over their hands so it looked like they weren't handcuffed. But in order to abuse women, they handcuffed the women in the back, they marched them out to government vehicles, and they took them to the hospital, and they would handcuff them to the bed for four days. Now, they would do this even when the women were eight months pregnant. So I came to work one day. I heard about they had a woman down to the hospital who was eight months pregnant. And when I heard about what happened with her case, I just realized at that particular time that it was time to come forward and blow the whistle. So I started preparing to blow the whistle. And blowing the whistle is not something you could do overnight. you got to prepare to do it. So I started collecting a list of media people because I realized early on the best outlet for a whistleblower is the media. So when I got ready to blow the, to blow the whistle, you know, I reached out to the media. Okay, and do you, um, well, you said you're currently out of the um, um, Border Patrol, correct? Yes, it's Customs Inspector, Customs and Border Protection. Yes, I retired in 2005, so I'm no longer there. So the only thing that people have right now is my books because I doubt seriously if there is going to ever be any more whistleblowers coming out of that agency. So people need to read my books, find out what happened, and find out how they can protect themselves. Okay, because my next question was going to be, is this behavior still prevalent so I can gather that it is 
at this point. Yeah, I've heard that they have went back to their old ways, but not as bad because before I left there, there was a lot of reforms put into place. They're now wearing name tags. So, you know, when you go through there, when you get on these flights, they got their name right on their uniform so you could get their name, you could get the time that you went through there, and you could write a letter to your congressman. You know, in the past they had badges with numbers on it, but now you can actually get their name. So there was a lot of changes that took place because of my whistleblowing. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for uh, your time and answering my question. Thank you, okay, guys. Sure, no problem. Let's see. The person that dialed in uh, should be Lashes. Uh, your line should be open. Hi. Good evening. Quick question. The book you are reading from tonight by the guests, what's the copyright on that book? Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm flipping. I'm going to have to flip to the front of the book, unless, Miss Harris, unless you have it off the top uh well, it's 2012. That book actually came out in December, but I copyrighted it in 2012. It's a new book. It took me a minute to get the book out because when I retired from there, you can imagine what kind of shape I was in. I had to heal before I actually went back and put my story in a book. Okay. Um, in regards to the mistreatment of black women at the uh, Miami airport, what law mm -hmm. is in place? that can allow an agency to coerce a traveler to be first handcuffed and on what grounds? Well, there is no ground. Like I said, we had, we had laws, rules, and regulation books, but they never read the books. And in the books, the books say that you can't do what they did. But so they violated their own laws, rules, and regulations. Like I said, you said they can do it if they find probable cause. Probable cause is somebody coming through there smelling like drugs or somebody coming through there with drugs falling out of their pocket or somebody coming through there and the dog alert positive on them. But they were only doing this because of mere suspicion. So in other words, they weren't supposed to be doing this at all. Next question would be where the travelers were detained or in the process of becoming detained. Where exactly did the process take place? Was it prior to boarding an airplane or when getting off an airplane? It was always getting off. I mean, but this is what they did, though. Okay, when you're getting ready to leave the country, U.S. Customs and Border Protection Officer will walk up to you if you're getting ready to go out of a country. Okay, say if you're a U.S. citizen, you're going out of a country, chances are you're coming back in the country. So they'll go up to you. If you have a foreign accent, they would get wait, your passport. Wait, 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 go up to you where exactly? At the gate or prior? When you're, when you're getting ready to, okay, when you're getting ready to get on a flight to go out of the country. Okay, they can walk up to you, get your flight. name. Correct. Say what? Handing in your ticket to the flight attendant person when you're walking in the little hallway going to board the airplane at the gate? Anytime. They're out there all the time by the airplane if they need government vehicles. If they see you, if they don't like the way you look, they can get your information, find out what seat you're on on the flight, or find out when you're coming back, you know, because usually they're going to look at your ticket. They're going to see when you're coming back. So they know when you're coming back, so they're going to put your name in the computer. When you come back, you automatically are going to be flagged for an inspection. Gotcha. Uh, the reason why I asked that question, because um, when I was leaving the U.S. to go to Europe, 
the attendant called me to the desk, right? She was like, oh, we just, because I print out my uh, ticket online. So they called mm-hmm. me to the desk. They wanted to check my ticket. For some reason, I had a feeling that in their system, something is marked near my name, but I don't know exactly what. And when I left Europe to come back to the U.S., when I went again at the gate to board the airplane, I was asked 50 million questions by the flight attendant. This is Delta Airlines, by the way. And I'm saying to myself, why are you asking me 50 million questions when you should have asked me those questions prior to coming into your country? This is me leaving the European country to go back into the U.S. So when I get to, you know, there's a line forming and, you know, people are inching along. You hand your ticket to the, um, the flight woman thing, Majiggy. She scans my, my ticket. Something prompts her to type, type in my name into the computer system. Based on her demeanor, I can tell something is going on. Like, I don't know if there's like a coding system or something for American travelers or travelers, period, against their name. But I just thought it was kind of suspicious. So I was just curious to know maybe you know furthermore information on that story I just explained. And, um, well, yes, they, um, they do have a relationship with the flight attendants, the uh, person who works at the airport, they have a relationship with U.S. Customs. So understand they are working with them to put codes in the computer on people when they travel. Do you know the codes offhand? No, I don't know the codes offhand, but what you need to do, you need to read both of those books I talked about because in those books I got the reasons why you are pulled over by U.S. Customs besides looking Afrocentric. They pull you over. If you pay for your ticket in cash, they're going to pull you over because they don't think that, uh, you know, you know, most black people do pay for their tickets in cash. Mm-hmm. But if you pay for your ticket in cash, they will pull you over. If you're going on a short trip, maybe two or three days, they will pull you over. Okay, because so I have a whole list of the reasons. Because I paid via credit card, well, excuse me, debit card, mm-hmm. and I was gone for two weeks. Right. But they know where you work. If you're unemployed, believe me, they got all that information on you. They know what seat you're sitting in when you come back on the flight so they can wait by the plane when you come off the plane. They know what seat you got out of. Gotcha. And um, the next question was going to be, you mentioned that they mis- the mistreatment of black women by the agency with people with uh, different accents, what have you. Did you find African-American women being treated the same way, or is it just the same treatment for all kinds of black women, regardless of language and culture across the board? It was all black women. Any black women with an Afrocentric hairstyle or Afrocentric attire, um, again, Caribbean or African uh, language, those all were the profile, and all the profile was unwritten, but for years, these were the top profiles that they looked for. When uh, the female wrote the uh, book, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, remember the book when the book came out? Mm-hmm. Okay, U.S. Customs had an unwritten rule to pull over any single black woman traveling by herself from Jamaica. So if you were a black woman traveling by yourself coming from Jamaica after that book came out, chances are you got pulled over. Okay. Thank you. Okay. 
appreciate the questions. Uh, if anyone else, if you all have questions, again, the number to dial is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have questions. Please do not wait until the last minute. Um, I think that's Terry McMillan that wrote How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Uh, what what was the correlation? Like, what was it about that book that prompted the, the increase uh, for black female passengers if they were coming uh, from the Caribbean for them to be stopped? What, what was significant about that book? Well, you know, the book, what did the book say? The book said that women in Jamaica had a great time, right? So you would not believe how many black women in this country went to Jamaica. And because they went to Jamaica, somehow U.S. Customs put down an unwritten rule. They said, we can now pull over all these black women and get away with it. So basically, so any black woman that came back into the U.S. from Jamaica after that book came out, they were pulled over by U.S. Customs and taken into the secondary area. Fascinating. Wow. Um, to get, because you were bringing up with one of the callers about your experience in Atlanta and, and how that seemed to be even worse, um, I thought that was super important. I had lived in Atlanta for a while, and, and you talked about how Atlanta uh, was I'm just read from the book. Atlanta was supposed to be the black mecca in quotes of the South. Then why were there no black females, first line, front line, supervisory, customs, inspectors at all when I arrived in July of 1994? There had been a few black male supervisors, but they by no means called the shots. Atlanta only got their first female supervisor who was white in October 1996 after the October 1995 reorganization of the agency. Even the Port of El Paso had two female supervisors long before the Port of Atlanta. Atlanta had managed to keep progress out of the port for years. The place was so backward, my friend once stated, he looked for dinosaurs to walk through the international airport terminal where he worked. Um, real important, I thought, because Atlanta, I think, is known to have, you know, explosive, huge black population. And a lot of people get confused and think black people are in charge and calling the shots. And you kind of start things off by saying, no, that was not the case uh, at the Atlanta port. Uh, can you talk about, uh, because there were some white female customs inspectors who worked there, can you talk about how you were treated by your white female coworkers? Well, when I first got to Atlanta, you know, again, my goal was to move up the chain of command and be a great supervisor because I knew I could have did a great job. But when I got to Atlanta, I had all the seniority. I was a senior customs inspector. I had worked on the border, so I had border experience. I had airport experience in Miami. I had seaport experience in Miami. So I had all the great qualifications I needed to be a supervisor. But when I got there, White women freaked out. They said, who is this woman? Now, one month before I got there, three other black females had also got there. We were the first group of black female custom inspectors that actually came into the job. And by the time I got there, they all had already filed EEO complaints. 
They had already been called all kind of names. I mean, they were just calling us names. It got so bad that we actually we had to actually call a meeting, a, a meeting between black females and white females to try to calm the situation down. Wow. Uh, I just, I we try to stay G-rated and, and not use a lot of profanity and what have you, but I think it's just important so people uh, get a grasp of what was being said. Uh, you wrote in the book that these white females were calling you all whores, bitches, uh, even nigger. Is that accurate? Yes, in front of passengers. Wow. If you recall when, when this I guess meeting was organized, what was said, what was suggested to try to, to resolve this tension? Well, yes, we had a meeting between black females and white females, and actually we should never have had the meeting because things got much worse after the meeting. Uh, you know, I didn't call the meeting, and the girl who called the meeting, you know, we told her she should have never called the meeting because after the meeting, the name calling got even worse. And I don't think it ever really calmed down the whole time I was there in Atlanta. Wow. Who Do you recall who called the meeting? Was it a black female or white people or somebody it else in town? It was a black female who called the meeting, but she was like Uncle Tom. Wow. Was she, I mean, was she calling it with good intentions to try to, you know, calm things down and, and to resolve things? Yeah, she was, and they weren't calling her, they weren't calling her names. And so she was maybe one of the only ones that they weren't calling the name, so she thought that she would call the meeting. And like I say, after the meeting, things got much, much worse. Wow. Word to your knowledge, because it's been my experience when this sort of conflict, racism, white supremacy is being practiced, they try to make it seem like, oh, it's equal on both sides. So in your experience, were the black uh, customs inspectors, were they name calling the white women? Were they doing anything to attack them or verbally attack them, abuse them in any way? No. All of the white women, we were just sitting back trying to do our jobs and get home to our families. That was, that was it. And you say it, it got worse. So it was just, was it more name-calling? Was it anything else going on? Like, were they trying to do other things to sabotage you on the job after this meeting? Well, they actually got with the supervisor, who was the highest-ranking supervisor in the port, that eventually I had to file a sexual harassment against because this guy was a sexual predator. I was told before I came to Atlanta from Miami, because he had actually worked in Miami, and they said, oh, you're going up there to Atlanta with the biggest sexual predator in the customs service. So when I got to Atlanta, I found that to be true. So all the women who had called me names, they actually got with the supervisor and the supervisor, every time I went up under a new supervisor, that supervisor, because he had so much rank, he actually had all the other supervisors write me up. So that's when I started being disciplined. Now, when I got to Atlanta, I had a file full of commendations. I had worked on the Mexican border. I had worked in Miami, Florida. I had all the commendations. And now in El Paso, Texas, and Miami, Florida, we had great unions, so, you know, the union looked out for me as an employee, but when I got to Atlanta, the union was totally in bed with management. Matter of fact, one of the females that was actually doing the name calling was the union president. 
Wow, that snatched a question. I was going to ask if you were able to go to the union and plan to get anything done about this, but I guess I guess not. Um, wow, you you had uh, you wrote in the book also that even before you got there, this tension between the white women and black females that the black females had made an effort to uh, point this out that they had made an effort to write things up and and to try to get something done and that went absolutely nowhere. Uh, people were not interested in any of their written complaints or anything that they had to say about the white women being abusive on the job. Right, right. And then when I got there, you know, I had a little more seniority. I was actually in line for a supervisor position, and when I applied for the position. You know how they say the floodgates open? That's when all everything broke loose simply because I applied for a supervisor position. Wow. Mm, mm, mm. White women on the job. I think I said that before. Lawless. White women on the job. Uh, you touched on the supervisor uh, who was harassing you uh, in Atlanta. Uh, now, was this was this a white, ma- a white male or a non-white male who was uh, sexually harassing he you? He was a white male. He was a white male. He ruled the whole port of Atlanta. He had tons of seniority. Five times I got five new supervisors, and every time they, I was written up by every supervisor because of him, because I had rejected his sexual advances. Six weeks after getting there, he started right away on me. I like women who are soft and pretty, women who wear makeup. And he was always standing 10 feet behind me everywhere that I went. I want to read a little bit from the book so people, again, get a, get a picture of how constant this sort of sexual abuse was. Uh, you write uh, that you, I ignored his sexual advances and walked away. He continued to comment, stating that he remembered me from a year ago when I came out to interview for the job. The same male supervisor had approached me a year before when I had visited the port for a job interview. At that time, he abused his position of authority by invading my personal space and coming within three feet of my person. He backed me into a corner with all his personal questions. He asked me questions such as, Are you married? How long are you going to be in town? Can I take you out on a date? He asked me all kinds of personal questions that you wouldn't expect your superior to ask you. Little did I know that would be a growing pattern of sexual abuse in the workplace by that same manager. Uh, And you talk about this widespread pattern. Again, same thing. Did you make an effort to let people know that this was going on, that this was incorrect, and how did they respond when you did let people know? Well, that's when I started going up the chain of command. You know, first it was a sexual harassment, so I filed a sexual harassment complaint. I was the first female to ever file a sexual harassment complaint against the supervisor, even though other women had also experienced the same thing. And at the same time, you know, I filed a my first EEO complaint. I ended up eventually filing 10 EEO complaints, including the sexual harassment complaint in the Port of Atlanta. Um, and you wrote in the book that there was retaliation uh, and people, your superiors, saying, hey, Ms. Harris, you keep filing all these complaints, and we don't think they're founded. We think that you are making this stuff up and you keep filing these reports. Uh, We're going to get you in trouble for making these false accusations against our employees. Is that true? Yes. 
Incredible. Um, can you can you tell our listeners uh, what the Jim Crow office was? Well, the Jim Crow the Jim Crow office was actually the supervisor's office. It was an office that all the employees came through to get to another office. Now. I was the only employee that could not go through that office. A couple of times I tried to go through, and they yelled at me, get out of here. But every other employee on duty could physically walk through the office without me. And this was standard known known operating procedure that this office, black people are not supposed to be in there. Right. I wasn't supposed to be in there. Wow. Wow. Uh, you write that you felt you were being uh, set up for termination uh, in Atlanta, not only coming in uh, and intimidating, apparently intimidating a lot of these white women uh, who work there, the customs inspectors, uh, because of your seniority uh, and being online, as you said, to be promoted, uh, but then filing sexual harassment charges and these EEO reports uh, of misconduct that they went about the business of, hey, we're going to get rid uh, of Ms. Harris. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. When I started filing the complaints, again, I went up the chain of command. I went to the supervisor superior, to his superior, to the Office of Inspector General, to the Office of Special Counsel. Now, as this stuff was happening to me, you've got to understand, I also saw what was going on with the travelers. So, you know, I really couldn't do anything about the travelers at the time because the sexual harassment was so evasive on me. But eventually, you know, I did look at what was going on with the travelers, the same thing as what was going on in Miami. So I went to the Office of Special Counsel to oversee whistleblower legislation. Because I had filed six EEO complaints, they told me that they could not do anything about my complaint, that I needed to see my whistleblower case through. But I said, what about the traveler? What about what was going on with the traveler? They still wouldn't help me. A while later, after filing maybe another complaint, I went back to the Office of Special Counsel trying to get them to look at what was going on with the travelers, but again, that office did not help me at all. Wow. With And with this sort of environment where you're reaching out, you're not getting help, uh, they, you know, are saying that you're making this stuff up and you're not following through uh, on these EEOC reports, uh, the white man uh, who had been sexually harassing you and looking for some sort of uh, to have some sort of sexual encounter with you, uh, he starts to retaliate as well. Uh, and you write that he was doing things, falsely disciplining you, uh, embarrassing you in front of coworkers. What sort of things was he doing to retaliate when you refused his sexual advances? Well, we had to talk on the radio to each other about things, and every time I got on the radio, he would get on the radio and say something really embarrassing to me, or he would tell me to come and stand in a certain spot, and if I moved from that spot, he would yell at me, and and about five of my coworkers would stand there and laugh at me. Wow. Just like that. Wow. Uh, You wrote here just again for the details uh, you write when I left the airport floor where the international passengers were located to go into the customs area to use the restroom this supervisor he would be waiting outside the restroom doors Uh, again I didn't know if he was going to try to enter the restroom to rape or strike me 
As I exited the restroom, he would give me those intimidating and vicious stares of his. Just how rampant all of this was. Uh, I guess how it seems like eventually you got to a point where he would steer clear of you. What did you do ultimately to kind of get him to give you some distance? Well, eventually, you know, once I blew the whistle and everything, and we eventually went up under Homeland Security, it was mandatory for us to wear weapons. Okay, everybody, let me tell you, everybody was armed on my job itself, me. The reason I was not armed is because that supervisor made the schedule. So he would always put me in these positions that did not require me to wear a firearms. Okay, I was the expert shot from the military. I was the expert shot with my weapon. So that's one of the reasons he never wanted me to have my weapon on. So when he did all of this stuff to me, again, everybody had weapons on, including him but me. But uh, when we went up under Homeland Security, it became mandatory for everyone to wear weapons. So when I finally started wearing my weapon, he stayed clear of me. Super important. Mm, being comfortable and prepared to defend yourself, very important. Um, in my view, no surprise, uh, you wrote just following this in the book, uh, you said that uh, I was constantly being disciplined for nothing. Eventually, I realized that these disciplinary actions were used to keep me in line, just like most of the white male managers had commented to so many black female employees nationwide in the customs service. You need to be shown your place. You need to be shown who is the boss. Uh, you, I'm skipping down a paragraph. You said this supervisor who was uh, sexually abusing you on the job, he said, I thought I was too good to speak to him and to others. He said this to me when he realized that I would not allow him to get me behind closed doors to discipline me and when I continued to reject his sexual advances. I had pride in myself and who I was as a person. I wouldn't give him eye contact or acknowledge his presence. So he and others thought I was an uppity, militant, and a radical black woman. Instead, I was a strong black woman who stood up for her rights. All I can say is that I was proud of who I was. All I was doing was demanding respect for myself as a woman, especially as a black woman. How important uh, do you think that was with regards to you being able to stand up to all of this intimidation and misconduct and to follow through on your uh, whistleblower suit? Well, it was always important, you know, how I felt and everything, how I was able to ignore the, you know, ignore a lot of the stuff that was taking place around me. That Jim Crow office, the only time that I was in that office is when they were trying to discipline me. They would try to force me to come into the office by myself, and I would refuse because I know that you're supposed to be able to take a union rep in the office with you. So every time they try to force me in the office, I had to call a union rep to come over, but they simply because the union rep wasn't in the building, they would write me up again. So every time they looked at me, the next thing I know, they would write me up. They wrote me up. You know, every holiday, you know, Mother's Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, any time when an employee is looking forward to having a great time with their family, 
I was being disciplined a day or two before that just so it was all my holiday. Disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. Um, and at the Atlanta port, uh, you commented that you also saw where uh, the customs inspectors, they were also practicing racism, white supremacy against the airline staff. Is that correct? Yes, they would have black males from the airline. They would actually have the canine handler run his dog on them, and the canine guy would lie and say that the dog alerted to drugs. So they would take this male in the search room and make him strip, do a strip search on him. And then when his bosses from the airline found out that he went through this, a lot of times he was fired even though he didn't have any drugs on him. Wow. <laughs> a lot of I mean, the women from the airline was terminated because they, again, refused the sexual advances of the male customs inspector. So they told the supervisors from the airline that they did not want those women in the customs service, even though the jobs entailed for them to come into the customs service with the paperwork. The fact that they couldn't come into the customs service with the paperwork, Delta Airlines and other airlines fired those employees. Wow. Disgraceful, tacky, and trifling pattern of behavior. Uh, I want to read this a little bit here, and then I do see some other folks that called in, so I'll get callers as well just about uh, the the canine unit. Uh, you wrote that the head canine supervisor from Customs could automatically make his canine dog sit down and alert positive for drugs, in quotes, on black travelers and black airline employees. He often selected young black males working with the airlines and brought them into customs to make them undergo an illegal strip search in order to embarrass them in front of their coworkers or supervisors to get them to quit their jobs. That was another point where I was shocked for a moment, maybe a couple seconds, just we have trained the dog to aid us in practicing racism against black people. Uh, the next one you wrote, uh, the first and only black canine enforcement officer, uh, oh, wait a minute, the first and only black canine enforcement officer's dog in the port of Atlanta is believed to have been poisoned. The male dog handler told me specifically that he knew that another customs inspector had given his dog poisoned food. Later on, the same customs employee was forced to resign from the agency when customs found out it was him stealing computers, radios, cameras, and other customs equipment. They also found out it was him giving flat tires and scratching cars both government and personal vehicles in a FAA secured parking lot. So U.S. Customs had many employees that were actually criminals. Uh, just to make sure I read this correctly, this was a black male uh, canine enforcement officer, uh, the only black male canine enforcement officer, believes that uh, – was this a white male customs uh, – customs Yeah, agent? that was a white male. Okay. Yeah, that was a white male. 
that he suspected had poisoned his canine dog that he was using to complete his duties, uh, suspected that this white guy had poisoned his dog. And then it was later found out that this uh, white customs inspector was stealing all of this property and vandalizing, damaging property in the FAA parking lot. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and he fled in my car eight times. Wow. Tacky, he also tripe. he also put straight pins in my chairs. Mm, mm, mm. What to say? What to say? I mean, it's just disgraceful. Totally disgraceful. I will hit the phone lines. Uh, the person that called in seven eight nine two. Did you have a question for Miss Harris? Yes, terroristic, terroristic. Um, uh, Ms. Harris, you mentioned earlier um, healing, and you've been intensely victimized like many of us victims. Um, but it seems like you're in a better place today with some of your accomplishments. Could you explain your healing process, if you're still in, it, in your healing process, or what have been some things that you've done to get to where you are today? Well, I think the biggest reason that I was able to heal, I became a writer. After I left the job, I became a writer. You know, this is something I should have been my whole life. Sometimes when you write, it's very therapeutic. I have 18 books out right now. I'm on this national tour. I think I'm totally healed right now. Once I became a health and wellness expert about four years ago, that was it because I was able to really figure out how your body works. So I've got these great lines of books that really is going to be able to help people move forward in their lives. And, again, like you said, I'm in a great place right now. That was all. Thank you, ma'am. All right, thanks. Uh, the person, oh, uh, 1804, your line should be open, 1804. Yes, hi. I, I'm just calling in um, because I, I just wanted to um, uh, uh, congratulate the, the guest for coming forward. I know it takes a lot of courage um, in our various jobs with our livelihoods to be able to come forward with all these stories. But I also am pretty sure that um, most of us can look at whatever job it is we're doing and um, identify similar patterns of deceit. And, um, and um, I, I think what is coming out from your experience that's the most um, interesting to me is how, um, as, Gus has, as Gus has said, people get rewarded um, suspected races get rewarded for um, uh, perpetrating and maintaining the system of white supremacy. Very often people say, oh, how is white supremacy maintained today? Isn't it residual racism? And we're finding out how people get rewarded and paid to maintain white supremacy. So I wanted to thank you for your courage and um, for, for um, bringing us this information. Thank you so much. I'm um, hoping folks are not waiting till the last minute. If you have uh, questions, again, the number is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Um, you, in the book, uh, talk extensively about the financial 
physical, mental, emotional, spiritual toll that all of this, just the daily degradation, uh, even if it's not happening directly to you, but just having to be in that sort of environment where you're observing what's happening to black female passengers, uh, the sexual abuse, uh, rampant sexual abuse uh, against black females, even coworkers, uh, that this leads to a lot of depression. Uh, particularly amongst the black females who work there. Can you touch on that and uh, also talk about some of the ways, some of the things that uh, particularly black females can do uh, to make sure that they don't end up being stuck in that spot where they're just feeling helpless, frustrated, and depressed? Well, yes. When my case uh, got out all over the country in the media, I then my coworker was so mad that I blew, you know, that I blew the whistle and everything. That they came after me. They forced me. I had two supervisors that stood ten feet behind me every day, all day long. Two white male supervisors. They intimidated me to the point where my doctor said, if I wanted to leave, I needed to leave the job. So in July of 1999, I left the job for 15 months, and of course, I was going through depression. I went on antidepressants and everything. But what I would tell black women today is to look at your diet, because 99.9% of people and what they're going through in this country is diet-related. So if I had known then what I knew, what I know now, I might have been able to keep going at it. You know, instead I took 15 months off the job, unpaid stress leave. I lost my home, of course. And like I said today, I probably would have been able to stay there if I kept exercising, if I kept eating the right kind of food. So food, again, plays a major role with what's going on in your life. So, again, eat green, organic, raw food. Read my health book. I've got one of the best health books out there. And, again, check out all my books at www.angelspress.com. And when I come to your city, I'm going to be giving health business seminars and self-publishing seminars. So again, go to my website at www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Look at the tour and, you know, and reach out to me. Contact me. Tell me you want me to come out and talk to your group. I want you to support this. I mean, I am doing this for black people. I'm in a great place now. I want to get out here and help, you know, black people. Um, I'm sure a ton of folks can relate to that, uh, particularly being on the job. And, I mean, I feel like we only scratched the surface uh, with regards to the harassment that you were experiencing on the job. Um, You were saying they were even uh, calling your home uh, and hanging up the phone and and doing all sorts of ugly things even while you were not on the job. Is that correct? Right. Fifty times a night they would call my home to the point where I had to literally take the phone off the hook. And something else I want to mention, when they when these black women in Atlanta went to the hospital, she was kept there, handcuffed to the bed for four days. You gotta understand the significance of this. A lot of these women were six, seven, eight months pregnant. In order to be released from the hospital, you had to drink this laxative called Go Lightly. The regulation stated as soon as a woman passed three clear bowel movements, she was supposed to be released. But my coworkers laughed about it. They never carried the bowel movements. They just kept the women there so they could make overtime money. Now, when they had the women in the search room in Atlanta, the women were naked for four hours. Imagine being in a search room, handcuffed to a cold bench, naked. That's what they did to the women in Atlanta. 
did you at any point observe or hear about that happening to white women who were eight months pregnant, uh, pregnant them having to take this go lightly uh, laxative and, and them being made handcuffed uh, to some sort of bed or railing while they were eight months pregnant? Did you observe that happening to white women? It was always black women. Mm. Mm. The person that uh, dialed in last four digits, 0949, did you have a question for Mrs. Ha- uh, Ms. Harris, 0949? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, uh, I have a quick question. Um, have have you, you approached the ACLU at all? Yes, the ACLU actually worked with my attorneys. I had whistleblower attorneys out of D.C. I had one of the best group of whistleblower attorneys out of D.C. who represented me for free. We worked with the ACLU. We worked with all of these groups all over the country. I got major media. That's why I was successful, because I put my case out there in the media. Um, Did they try to link what you were able to detail with that of the stop and frisk uh, procedures? Because that's what kind of reminds me of. Um, yeah, yeah they, did. they did a lot of that. You remember now, Chicago had 1,300 sisters that also blew the whistle on U.S. Customs. This was professional women, doctors, lawyers, judges, and teachers that actually went through the same thing that all the other women went through. And they filed a historic class action lawsuit out of Chicago. So again, these abuses are taking place all over the country because I went to the National Newspapers Publishers Association and the articles were going out to 200 black newspapers. So, you know, again, we have a lot of media behind this. There was a lot of lawsuits. There's still a lot of lawsuits out there on this particular case. And you telling your story kind of reminds me of the black codes um, from back in the day. Also, it reminds me of the mistreatment that black women faced after the Civil War and during Jim Crow by their employers. Yes, it's very similar. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. I wanted to double-check, make sure I didn't uh, miss any callers. Uh, I guess the caller in the Bronx, uh, Princess 7892, uh, 1804. Did anybody have a uh, question they wanted to get in uh, before Ms. Harris exits? Yeah, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Just to try, um, you know, pick. Uh, do, do you have any two questions? Do you have any books? I mean, uh, are your books only available in e-form, or do you have any paper books? I'm actually getting my story in print. My story should be in print within a couple of weeks. So keep looking at the website. You know, it's going to say e-book, and then up under the book, it's going to say print. So the Kathy Harris story should be in print in a couple of weeks. Okay. I guess I'm going to have to get a Kindle or whatever. Um, and also, I, I just wanted to, because I would asked you um, about the whole thing with the Novocaine, because I felt like my, I felt, you know, I, I only eat organic, and I, I, I kind of felt like I was crashing. Like I kind of felt unhealthy after I had got to, um, I went to the dentist and I kind of felt weak a little bit um, last couple of days in the evening. Like, I think from the Novocaine, I kind of like my health kind of, you know, I mean, I just kind of felt a little bit faint. But I was just wondering if you knew of anything specifically that, um, I don't know, something to boost the immunity. 
of that particular drug. Well, you need to do, do you do regular detoxification? Everybody needs to do a detoxification program of their colon, liver, and kidneys. Now, I've written a 99 cents article on how to do a detoxification. So go on my website at angelsquest.com. Go into my books, and I have right by my books are articles, 99 cents articles, and there's an article on detoxification. So read that article because you need to be doing regular detoxification of your body because there's so many bad things in the air out here, in the food, in the air. So make sure you go on my website and read that article. Definitely. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hi, guess uh, this is Princess again. I was just going to um, thank the guests for um, sharing uh, the information in reference to, I guess, the emotional toll when you go through uh, uh, harassment uh, cases uh, such as this uh, to this magnitude because I think that is kind of missed to some degree that people uh, or people tend to overlook uh, the emotional uh, told that it takes on an individual um, when you go through cases of harassment, um, constantly having to go into work each and every day in a hostile work environment, environment. and uh, to some degree it's relentless, uh, such as mine, and when you're the only one who is willing to um, make a stand, you know, it's easy for people from the outside listening or, you know, just observing just to, you know, make make comments, you know, of such about, you know, things that you should have, could have did. But until you go through it yourself and you you really see what what um white people are capable of, especially white women, because um a huge factor in this was um uh a, a white woman in another department that was the architect of all of what happened with me. So um, I mm-hmm. just thank you for sharing that information. And uh, just ask right, thank you. And like I said, I've got three books out on discrimination. They're up to date. They can really tell you exactly what it is that you need to do. So make sure that you read those e-books that I've got out on discrimination. Check out my books at www.angels. Press.com. And when I come through your city, now I'm going to be talking about workplace issues, whatever you guys want me to talk about. I will be available to talk about everything. Okay. Thank you so much. Right. And if you have a question, feel free to call me at 770-873-2072. 770-873-2072. Feel free to call me for a consultation. I will give you a free consultation and kind of tell you what it is you need to do. Check out my website again at www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Um, before we uh, wrap things up, I did. I wanted to get in uh, two quick questions because these are folks that people comment on pretty regular. Or of late, I will say people have commented on. Uh, I heard about your work. Uh, you were being interviewed with the Huffington Post, and I think they were talking about uh, President Obama. Uh, he had just mm-hmm. signed S743, uh, which is supposed to protect whistleblowers make it a little safer for them to speak out if they're seeing some sort of misconduct so that they do not encounter any sort of retaliation uh, as a result of speaking out. 
Uh, and it seemed like he thought this legislation was constructive. This was something that would help out people who might be in your position. Do you think, you know, this this legislation S743, do you think this is this was a constructive uh, bill that he signed? Well, it was a great bill that he signed, but understand the bill did not protect intelligence whistleblowers. So we still have work to do because it did not cover everyone. Okay. When you say intelligence, you mean people that might be working? National like Security national. Whistleblowers, okay. people who work for National Security, CIA, DHS, FBI. It does not protect those whistleblowers. I see. Hmm. Well, as a customs inspector, that now falls under the Department of Homeland Security. Is that true? Yes. So a lot of my old coworkers will not be protected. Hmm. I see. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess the other one, uh, in your efforts uh, to speak out in what you uh, revealed, uh, Congressman John Lewis, uh, well known for his efforts uh, in the so-called civil rights movement and lifelong effort against racism, uh, he also uh, passed legislation as a, as a result of what you revealed and many other folks. Um, I know on a recent broadcast, I think one of the listeners, they were, I guess, complaining. I guess they were feeling that he was not responding appropriately to racism. And they were, I think he might have even been referenced as a sellout. Um, and I just, when his name popped up in the book with regards to what he did um, to help kind of get some additional legislation passed through, wanted to ask you, um, I guess, with his efforts, the legislation that he helped get through, were you pleased with, with uh, how he responded? Well, the legislation did not actually get passed. It was introduced twice, and it took me three years to get to John Lewis. Every time I called his office, simply because I did not live in his district, they told me they couldn't help me. He was over the Atlanta airport, and I did not live in his district, so they kept telling me that they couldn't help me. The only reason John Lewis got involved is because the news team aired my story in the media. So when they did that, of course, he had to get involved. But again, the two bills that we tried to get passed, the Civil Rights, the International Travelers Act, and the Reasonable Search Standard Act were not passed because of 911. When 911 occurred, um, had 911 not occurred, yes, the bill would have been passed. Well, that was the justification uh, that was given as for why certain, I guess, congressmen decided not to vote for the bill? Basically, it was, you know, between you and me, that's why the bills did not get passed because, you know, after 911, people kind of went crazy there for a minute. Hmm. Wow. What, uh, what year was he trying, or I guess the two times, what two times uh, was he trying to get passed? Uh, what, what year was he trying to get the bill through? 1999 and 2001, right before, right before um, we had 911, yes, right before we had 911. Uh, so the bills weren't passed. Had we not had 911, I believe to this day we would have laws on the books to to give passengers even more protection than they have now. Wow. And again, everybody is just going to have to read my two books because I lay out everything in my two books, and there are no other whistleblowers coming out of this agency. So everybody from now on, if you want to know your rights, you need to just read the two books. Mm. Do you see any possibility since I guess it's been some time now uh, as we get a little bit further away time-wise from 9-11? Do you think it's possible that if someone makes an effort to get this legislation in Congress again that it might pass? 
Maybe it's possible, and my ultimate goal was to have civilian review boards formed to watch Department of Homeland Security, to watch them, to see exactly what they're doing. You know, that was my ultimate goal. So, you know, anything is possible. Who knows? Maybe this tour that I'm doing now is going to be able to do this. Who knows? Once I travel to all these cities and I plan on talking to the black press, to black radio, maybe we can do it now. Maybe we could get all of this passed now. I definitely wish you the best. Uh, it definitely seems like something that would benefit from black people to be more informed about this, particularly if you're going to do any traveling, if you're going to the airport, if you know that would definitely behoove you to be uh, informed uh, as much as possible about this and to share with other black people. Uh, again, you can visit uh, her website, www.kathyharrisspeaks.com. Uh, the address again, www dot Kathy Harris speaks dot com. Uh, definitely would uh, love to have you back on the program to check out some of your uh, other books uh, to get more in depth. I, I was looking at the Workplace Survival Guide. I think that would be phenomenal. I know it's a lot of black people out there who've commented on difficulties that they've had on the job. And anytime you can get some tips that might help you to keep your job and to do well so that you're getting your promotions and raises on time, I think that would definitely be a benefit. So if you'd be willing to come back and visit with us, we would love to have you back on to discuss some of your more publications. Oh, I would love to come back and talk to your audience. Outstanding. We will make it happen. Uh, visit the website and, again, check out the tour. Uh, she should be coming to your area. Uh, she named some of the different states that she's going to be going to. Folks that if you're in that neck of the woods, just visit the website, see the date and time that she's going to be there, and get out and support should be great information. And uh, also, as she said, should be paper editions of her publications coming out soon. So just visit the website. And if she's in your area, stop by, ask questions and support her work. Outstanding material. Uh, real pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, it was pretty despicable uh, reading a lot of, of what you had to endure uh, as a customs agent, but definitely great information. I'm glad we were able to make the broadcast happen. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Harris, for sharing some of your time with us this evening. Thank you so much. Thoroughly appreciated it. I uh, hope folks will visit the website and uh, support her efforts, get the book. Fantastic info. Uh, we will be in touch, Ms. Harris. I wish you best of luck with your tour. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Enjoy your evening. Context of white supremacy. Man, uh, really glad we could get her on the program and share that information. Uh, and as I said, I will be looking forward to getting her back. Uh, just some of the different titles that she's done, Workplace Survival Guide. Definitely want to cover that one. Uh, Police Interactions 101, that should be another one. Must read for all of the problems that we tend to have uh, when we come in contact with enforcement officers. Uh, it's just quite of 18 books. 18 books. She's been quite prolific in uh, writing and getting out constructive information. Uh, again, we'll be back tomorrow for the broadcast. I'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be back to see if anybody has anything they want to share before we wrap the broadcast up. Context of white supremacy. Just stay tuned and we'll be back once the commercial is done. RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. 
From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com. 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 Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? CounterRacism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at TRI Multimedia. Multimedia.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a cow's episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, co-hosting the cow's radio program, please visit my blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I got an uncle real crazy. My uncle B, 55 years old, hates white people, married to a white lady. And he's sitting around going, you know, these crackers ain't shit. Except for Susan. He tried to explain the whole thing to me one day, say, yeah, 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 I got a white wife, I love her, she love me, that's all that matter. But I tell you this, if the revolution ever come, I'll kill her first. Just to show these crackers I mean business. <laughs> motherfucker cracker ass, motherfucker cracker. Shit cracker, motherfucker. Well, hey, hey, hi, honey. <laughs> motherfucker cracker, I'll kill my cracker kid too. 
<laughs> Context of white supremacy. Uh, again, we will be back tomorrow. Uh, first study session, Melba Patillo Beals. Warriors Don't Cry, outstanding text. I'm super excited uh, about beginning it. Uh, this is one I think you have offspring, children that are younger. Uh, when I say younger, I mean like they're under 15. They should probably be able to, well, we have the audio book, so they should definitely be able to listen to it. But I think this is a book they would be able to read and understand. It's not full of big words. It's not like Urugu. I think if they're under 15 and, you know, their reading level, they don't really have any difficulties with reading. I think they should be able to easily comprehend it. And I think it would be meaningful to them. Like, I think if someone had presented me this book uh, when I was that age, 14, 15, I would have probably enjoyed it and I would have grasped the seriousness of it. Uh, and I suspect as long as the system of racism, white supremacy is in effect, any black person in the world will be able to relate to racism in school. I, I am sure it's unfortunate, but I'm sure it might not be some of the more extreme, overt, terroristic acts of racism that were going on in 1957 uh, that the Little Rock Nine had to endure. But I am sure if they've had white teachers uh, at some point in their lives, I'm sure something will stick out. Oh, yeah. I can relate to this big time. So this might be one, even if uh, the young people, even if they're not able to tune into the broadcast, which would be great, they can tune in and share. But if this is one that you want to share, if you want to get the audio book and ride around, uh, have it playing in the car or maybe even designate uh, once a week, twice a week, uh, just get together and listen, children, parents family, whoever, uh, and just sit down and share your thoughts, what you think about it. You can share some of your experiences if you're older uh, and you want to reminisce about some of the times you were in school and felt like racism was being practiced against you. Highly recommend it tomorrow evening. Going back to the old broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, people said that they weren't weren't pleased about the book session being an hour earlier and I'm pleased with it being back at the normal time, too. So 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, tomorrow evening, uh, first session, Melba Patillo Beals, Warriors Don't Cry. Super excited about that. Uh, that said, uh, I, before I hit the phone lines, uh, for the folks who were interested in getting any of Kathy Harris, any of her books, you do not need a Kindle in order to read the books, if you have a computer, you should be fine. You will be fine. If you have a computer, doesn't matter if you have a Mac, PC, whatever. Uh, if you don't have the actual portable Kindle device, all you have to do, you can go online. Uh, you can get it from Amazon.com, and I'm sure you can probably go to the Kindle website and get it. They have an app that you can download, uh, and just you can read any Kindle book on your computer. Uh, they have a, a link. If you go to Amazon.com, they have a link. And you can download the Kindle app. Just pick whatever computer type that you have. I think they even have one for an iPad and a lot of other devices as well. So you do not need a Kindle to read any of the books. So if you're interested, if you want to get any of her material, and it's all very, very cheap. I think all of her books are less than $3. So if you're interested in getting any of them, you do not need a Kindle. Just make sure you download the appropriate app uh, for your iPad or PC or Mac or whatever you have, just download that and then you will be good to go. You can read it right on your computer. Uh, that said, 
Uh, I will read two quick segments from the book just again to round out, give some more of the really gruesome details uh, of Mrs. Harris uh, and her experiences. Uh, this, she's just talking about some of the widespread standard operating racist procedures against black empo uh, employees uh, who were customs inspectors. Uh, she, she shared in the book, she said that annual and sick leave was den being denied to black employees at a disproportionate rate. Black employees were subjected to harsh leave restrictions that white employees were not. Black customs employees were put on absence without leave, AWOL, and their money taken out of their paychecks without them knowing it until they received their paychecks. Black employees had to work 13 days straight without a day off and put on eight-hour workdays with only a 20-minute break. While white employees went on breaks constantly and called into work anytime they felt like it. Again, lots of gruesome details. Can't share everything, but just to round it out so that you get an idea of just how pathetic and trifling uh, all of the misconduct was uh, that she observed while she was a customs inspector. Last one I'll share and then we can get to the phone lines. Uh, this is a little bit earlier in the book. Uh, she writes, in addition, black women who were U.S. citizens were nine times more likely than white women who were U.S. citizens to be x-rayed after being frisked or patted down in the physical year 1998. But on the basis of x-ray results, black women who were U.S. citizens were less than half as likely to be found carrying contraband as white women. The March 2000 GAO report, which was ordered by Richard Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, confirmed that black women were nearly twice as likely to be strip searched on suspicion of smuggling drugs as white men and women. Moreover, black women were three times as likely as black men to be strip searched. Again, oh, and you can get that entire report. I tried to put it on Facebook, but it was not cooperating for some reason. Uh, I downloaded it, so I do have it if it ends up being a problem where people are having difficulty accessing. But the report that gives the breakdown of the strip searches, uh, you can get the actual raw data that I just read. You can get that. The address, I'll see if I can give it slow so folks can write it down, is HTTP colon forward slash. I uh, got interrupted. Sorry about that. All right. Start over. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www dot G-A-O dot gov forward slash new dot items forward slash gg zero 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 three eight dot pdf and uh, you can get the whole report it's not very long it's like 15 pages or so uh, I did put it on Facebook. I'm not going to say it again because it's on my Facebook page. So you can just go there and click it. If you have a problem opening it, uh, I the way I opened it as a Google document. Uh, if I just normally, if you put in the address for a PDF, it 
at least for me, it normally gives you the option to view it or you can just download it and then you can open it with whatever app you use to open PDF files. But for this one, it was not doing that. I ended up having to open it through Google Documents and then I could read it that way and you can also save it uh, from there. But I don't know, for whatever reason, it wasn't working that way. So just take that link. It's on my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. Uh, you can click it if you uh, weren't able to write it down. Just take it from there. If you're not able to open it, open it as a Google document. You should be able to open up uh, the Google document page and put this URL in and it should be able to open it up and you can access it. It's great information. Save it. Keep it on your file. As Mr. Nero says, you should have a little folder of ammunition information when you talk about racism, white supremacy. Bang, you got raw data, racism, white supremacy being encouraged, practiced, and rewarded. Lots of info in her book about white people being rewarded financially for practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, and the dog bit. I was, there were many aspects of the book that were just stunning, disgraceful. But the dog, the white man poisoning the black male's dog. Man, I never hear about white people mistreating dogs. They love their dogs. They have sexual intercourse with the dogs, lick the dogs in the face all the time, have the dog eating at the table with them. I never hear about white people mistreating, abusing dogs. Anything goes as long as it is in the practice of racism, white supremacy. Uh, the folks that dialed in, uh, if you all had anything you wanted to share before we wrap things up, uh, should be uh, uh, caller in the Bronx, uh, 2658 uh, Princess, uh, the caller at 7892 and 1804. Uh, if you all had, uh, just watch the background noise. I'm hearing, uh, I'm hearing an echo. I think it's coming from 1804. I'm hearing an echo. Uh, if you all want to share, feel free if you have anything you want to get in before we wrap things up. Uh, can I be heard? heard? Heard both of you. Okay. You Ladies first. first. Oh, no, you can go first. Uh, yeah, well, first I'd like to commend the uh, the guest uh, on, on her uh, efforts uh, to uh, assist uh, other non-white victims in uh, in uh, trying to solve some of their problems under the people activity of employment uh, uh, that that needs to spread uh, uh, some of the experiences I'm, I'm also aware of and and the one of the uh, possible solutions I think she mentioned about uh, uh, connecting with the community itself uh, I have also been a part of of, of applying that and have been successful uh, also uh, within employment before I retired. Uh, uh, when you involve the community, uh, that you 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 would you would could, could render some assistance. I would say uh, with uh, the uh, non-white uh, organizations, uh, you have to be careful because within the embodiment of the organization, some of the membership specifically the leadership uh, may be intimidated by the, uh, the, the staff or the administration of your job uh, because the individuals may be in that, in that uh, black organization may want to be able to move up in the, in the employment itself and they may get intimidated. But if you help this effort, then you can't you know, move up in the ranks, that sort of thing. Uh, so by addressing to the community, 
that can't be intimidated in that way, it can uh, assist you. Uh, but I, I really commend her on, on what she she is doing, and 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 uh, would like to see that uh, uh, really uh, take off all around uh, uh, with with other non-white black people. It, it would reduce a lot of the uh, the uh, problems that we have on 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 these jobs. That's all I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I wanted to. Um, I had something to do with what I was going to say, like because um, it's kind of like white supremacy. They kind of herd us into these corners, like uh, like rat, like rats in a maze, you know. And it's like, uh, yeah, they they, they kind of like um, make us. Uh, it's like she was saying that black females that have that Afrocentric look, like you know, black females basically that aren't chemically mutilating their hair you know, and that are actually, that actually see some value in themselves as non-white people, you know, as some, um, you know, personal value to themselves. And um, I see the dynamic of um, non-white females kind of devaluating themselves as being, you know, black and then being driven into the arms of the oppressor. You know, like I know, I mean, <sighs> I know, there's a, I mean, being with people that are just flat-out racist, like flag-waving, you know, waving Confederate flags, talking about, like, like that movie Neo-Ned, Gus had brought up, you know, where it's like love doesn't have a color or something, and it's, like, just really, seems like it's just a really fine line between um, people being happy and with uh, happy with the oppression and uh, being unhappy enough with the reality to be like Miss Harris and actually do something about it and not just be driven to help the oppressors out, you know. So I, I very much appreciate the information also. Yes, and, 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 and uh, re- recognition needs to be, be given also to her personal courage because when you are a non-white person in that particular situation, you are probably literally by yourself, literally by yourself within that, that employment. Even though you may be amongst physically, you may be amongst a, a, a considerable amount of non-white people, non-white black people in some cases, but you literally, due to, intimid, to, to the intimid, intimidate, in, intimidating environment, uh, that you may, will be by yourself, literally. And in a job, uh, I was a fire fireman for over 27, over 30 years. And you, 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 you are staying overnight with people for 24 hours, and it could be it could be a very intimidating environment. Uh, 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 when you 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 you, it, it's because of the fear. It's a atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of fear. And if you are doing some of the things that she took the courage to stand up and do, it, it, is, it is very dangerous for that individual. So I, I can almost feel what she, she went through, and she showed a lot of courage and, 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 and did a, devoted a lot of her time to doing some thinking uh, to solve some of those problems. And by her putting it into, into literature, it, it, it can be like a one-on-one on so others can 
solve some of their own problems because people are looking for that. People are looking for answers in those situations because, as I mentioned before, you 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 will feel almost by yourself, you know, especially when they call you in for those meetings and whatnot and, and, and with the idea that you will walk out being unemployed. <laughs> And that'd be the, that'd be the that'd be the 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 uh, least thing that can happen to you on some of these jobs by just being fired. You can actually get killed in some situations, especially on a job like the one I was on. You can get killed. I think uh, the the story that Gus was touching on uh, just moments ago about how uh, the white people in the job were. I guess, barring people from taking breaks and stuff like that, that's pretty much, that that was standard operating procedure where I was at at Comcast. And um, I had uh, went to HR about it, about it and addressing it. Um, I had never experienced anything uh, to, to that degree like that where we could blatantly see other departments, other white people in other departments um, going on break. Um, but when it came to our specific department, um, it, it was almost like we had to get an act of Congress uh, in order to allow us to have a break. And when I initially brought this up, I remember being told that we, um, um, you know, and, and this was told in a, in, as a joke, um, that we need to uh, learn how to stay in our cages. That's what was told to, to, to me yeah, when that, I addressed this. That's standard. A lot of, lot of, lot of nasty, nasty, vicious things are framed into a joke. So it right. can be considered to be, well, what's wrong with you? You don't have a sense of humor? You know, mm -hmm. that sort of, that would be projected at you. Uh, right, uh, but the fact that they use that term, you know, you know, cages and stuff, it, it just shows you their their whole mindset of how they look, again, like us versus exactly. them. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. We, we weren't deserving of breaks, any respect, or this, that, and the other. And, you know, for me, being the only black woman there who was willing to confront um, management, um, and like you said, you, you're standing alone, and that's why I have very little patience uh, with, <laughs> with um, people, um, other non-white people on the job now. Right. After right. this experience, I, I have a no tolerance. I, I, I can't hear the excuses anymore. And, but, you know, I, I don't blame or hate anybody, but that, you know, I, I just had to go through some refinement of my own, so. Right, right. Because, as, as I mentioned before, other non-white people can be intimidated. Uh, right. One may, one may be in, ambitious to want to move up, and the, and the fastest way to move up is to, is to, to, uh, impact negatively another non-white person. If you, mm -hmm. you uh, 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 to white people as a non-white person show the willingness to 
to uh, assist them into harming another non-white person, then you probably are going to be uh, considered for, for upward mobility, as they, as they used to call it, <laughs> upward mobility. That's far as that's concerned. Correct. Right. Uh, because Which is what they, they verbally tried to do for me. I mean, uh, the individual that um, uh, the the other coworker that I was working with, basically, um, they wanted her gone for a very long time. Uh, and uh, she she was from up north in in New York, and uh, her husband. And I'm only going to tell this just in general, but I would have to speak to probably Gus or somebody else after hours, but just to save face, the re- part of the reason why um, this bothers me so much is that this person's husband uh, is a former FBI agent from New York, and with my dad having a background um, with the government, and law enforcement, you know, he was a detective at NAS Jacks. So I took it personal, like I said, because for me, you know, coming from a military background, I should know better. But I, I don't want people to prejudge because people don't know the details. So I'm just just giving you the gist of some of the things. But the main thing was the fact that for a long time they they wanted her gone. Uh, the supervisor uh, from the other department who managed um, the regional division, she took a liking to me in the beginning when I first met her only because, you know, I was a new, I guess, the new kid on the block, so to speak. And, you know, like we was talking about earlier, they wanted me to go to lunches and stuff like that, and I always came up with excuses as to why I didn't want to go. I I just never associated with management, and they were always trying to pick and find out things about me. I'd hear remarks about, you you know, my, yeah, I would hear remarks about my weight or the fact that I didn't have a boyfriend, you know, anything they were trying to throw at me, but even before they terminated me, they, um, the manager had even said, well, Princess, why are you worried about uh, protecting everybody else? Don't you see everybody else is, um, uh, don't you see other people are uh, coming after you and this, that, and the other? And I have, my dad being a detective, one thing he spoke to us about was playing dumb with people and that you let people think that you're unaware of what they're doing. Right. Um, because they don't, it, you as a black person, they don't expect much from you anyway. So they will never see you coming. Only speak so, about what is necessary. Only speak about right. what is necessary. Correct. So, like Mr. Taylor said, a lot of us have mm-hmm. the bad habit of wanting to try to impress white people that we know something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, we do a lot of talking as opposed to yeah. listening and asking questions. Uh, yeah. Very essential. And in mm-hmm. uh, the, the work environment I, I was in, it, it was constantly a hostile situation, a very right. hostile situation. I mean, amongst it, it was a whole bunch of 
some some of the some of the racism was 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 silly. I mean, things like uh, if non-white black people ate, they would throw away the plates. They would throw away the plates, all the dinnerware that they that they used. You know, silly yeah. stuff. You know, like that. Uh, to the extent of some some horrendously nauseous sexual activity, uh, if if you lowered yourself or was naive enough to get into it with white people, they had this game whereas you, you would have a white male's testicles on your forehead. Uh, there was a non-white male who was affected in that way uh, uh, on the job uh, because he got, into, got in with them socially from a social standpoint. Mm-hmm. And before he knew it, he got abused. He got abused, you know, in that, in that process. You know, and uh, it's, it's yeah, it's, they would do stuff I, I, I like I can tell war story after war story as far as that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know but it's, it's like, like even with my uh, supervisor now, when I spoke to Mr. Fuller, I had disclosed to him that the other issue not only was my supervisor a white male, uh, the the crux of it was the fact that he was uh, gay. So not only did I have the dynamics of the regional manager, a white woman, that I had a gay white male, and I had a preponderance of things coming at me from all angles. So as I say, it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than um, I would have time to, to go through. But even with him, they 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 uh, would do things to to pit, poke fun at him. And um, I remember one day I came in, somebody had taken a princess, one of those tiara crowns uh, that said princess, and put it on his desk. And he comes over to me accusing me of putting the tiara that said princess on his desk, like he didn't bother to look at or confront anyone else. He came straight to me and was like, why did you put this on my desk? And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just crazy stuff like that. So. I can imagine. Imagine. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, once again, like I said, I, I, I commend her and uh, and commend all, you know, uh, all who uh, who have shown some interest in order to to uh, assist others in that way. It's, it's uh, definitely needed. Definitely needed. Anything else, uh, folks? Want to get in? Any other callers uh, on the line? Um, no one else. Was, I was um, pretty. Uh, the, the thing that she mentioned about the uh, organic foods, I, I find out kind of found that kind of terrifying. Well, not terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I like what what the um, previous. Uh, caller was saying, the uh, male caller was saying about, um, oh, I said a brain lapse, but um, 
oh, oh, about how she's all alone, you know, and I feel like a lot of us are kind of in that in that space, but it's like, you know, it's like you're better off alone than if you were going to be around a bunch of people that were going to, you know, um, either be practicing racism against you or a bunch of confused victims. Um, I think if we actually, you know, once we have our eyes on justice, as, you know, Gus has got this... Um, amazing program here, a forum for us to, you know, confer on the topic of justice, you know, with the specific context laid out, you know, all these great guests. Um, um, just, uh, I've always, I, I've felt for a very long time, I really, I don't want to go into like, oh, I'm special or something, but I mean, just as far as feeling alone, like I've always kind of gone down that path where no one else was really there but I felt like it was healthy as far as like the organic foods things like most black people in the Bronx or wherever, like black people don't really know about black people that I interact with. Most of them don't really think twice about organic food or, um, just a lot of things that, uh, that, um, you know, I, I kind of focus on, but, um, I see you, how she said that, that the organic food has had to do something with, um, with the diagnosis of ADHD and um, just things like that. Um, so I guess just like some some encouragement just to, um, you know, like, you know, keep on whacking away at that tree one of these days, you know, it, it's going to be the last whack. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's true. And, you know, and, and the food thing that she was saying, uh, you know, was was, was – Quite important to assist the individual because it's essentially that's that's what that's what it, it, it's going to come down to. Uh, and Mr. Fuller states that it, you know it's independent, it's an independent situation. Uh, it, I, 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 I've had quite a unique experience because myself and several others who happen to be employed uh, within the same profession met Mr. Fuller December seventh, nineteen ninety. All in the same location, and and uh, along with uh, our understanding of things as individuals, uh, we became somewhat close within that em- that place of employment uh, uh, by being codified. Also, uh, and I think that that really assisted myself as well as three or four others to survive to be able to retire from that that particular profession uh, by being, by making attempts on a daily basis to, to be uh, codified in our, act, our individual activities, and it really assisted. Uh, but like, like you said before, you, you have to be prepared individually. You have to be prepared individually. This is, this yeah. is war. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, I'm sorry, um, Princess kind of like um, she kind of uh, is real, real, um, you know, firm on that stance where she's like, you know, I, I just can't really, you know, I don't really have time for the. I mean, I hear, I hear that, and it's like, it's like that backbiting behavior that people um, take part in. I, I just came to realize just recent, just a few days ago, I just kind of like had a had a kind of a epiphany, or you know, I just had a realization that like they weren't doing that because they hated me 
you know, even if it was just so consistent. And with some people that are like the cl- people that are closest to me have this backbiting tendency, you know, this backbiting behavior where it's like I, it just seems like just totally personal. But um, I, I realize that it's a dynamic. Like they're just, it's, 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 um, they see a dark-skinned black male and they don't, they don't see me. You know, they see a dark-skinned black male and they see the dynamic and they know that that's, that's that that I am available to, for mistreatment, you know. It's, um, you know it, that's what it is. It's like the problem is white people, you know. And you know, the, the blacker you are, the more available you are to be mistreated. Like totally open season, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I'm just glad to realize these things, you know, and to, to not. So and we're 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 available for them when they when they actually have some sense, you know, but we're not available to be mistreated anymore, you know, or to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. Uh, this is 1804. I guess I guess I just want to say that um uh, having experienced quite a bit of mistreatment um, over the years um, in the workplace until I finally found a way to uh, work, pay my bills that doesn't involve me being attached to a workplace uh, for very long periods of time, um, which to me is a solution. I mean, my um, my conclusion over the years was there's just no, you know, it's futile to beat yourself up when you fail to, you know, see mistreatment coming. I mean, for for example, um, for Princess and her situation when she's dealing with a white gay male, a white woman, she's dealing with a very ambiguous looking non-white person, she's dealing, you know what I'm saying, it's like when there's so many wrenches thrown your way, which is going to be most of our workplaces today, if we live in big cities, um, with a lot of very refined racists around. I mean, I, she, I know she's in Florida. I, I'm, you know, uh, some of us are in some of those refined racist centrals. I mean, mistreatment is par for the course. I mean, you know, you could either sit down and like, you know, you we we have to. I mean, obviously, you do your best, and I and I, I appreciate that Mr. Fuller gives out um, he gives out. Um, uh, you know, advice, like he tells people, live close to your job, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I mean, my personal conclusion, um, and if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I, I happen to be uh, reasonably well-educated, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, uh, you know, my conclusion is that this is just, this is just, it's just open season on us. It's just how, uh, yeah, we've been singled out for this. Uh, plus, on top of that, in order to maintain their system, they have to constantly dominate. So they have to even, you know, establish backbiting between themselves. So when the air is so rarefied, even for themselves, and on top of us, uh, on top of that, we are involved. It's just, you know, it's just, I just want to encourage people not to take these things personally, and um, and uh, I know that sometimes the hardest part is that your own relatives will 
blame you for these types of situations, and it's just you know you just have to um, you just have to remind yourself that you know it's too bad they don't understand what they're living in, but you know you you're doing your best to survive as a victim under the system, and um, um, you know keep your head up and you know keep going and uh, uh, you know lick your wounds. And uh, when you get into the next job, you know, if the same thing happens, the same thing happens. You know, there's, it's really tough. It, it's really, uh, it's really, it's really tough. And it's, it's hard for a lot of people not to blame themselves for this type of thing at the end of the day. And we're dealing with so much already that um, we just need to, thank God we have this space where we can discuss this. And um, if you think back on the times when you didn't have, when you didn't even know what you were dealing with in terms of this uh, system that's out there and, you know, you, these things were happening to you and you had no idea why they were happening and you kept thinking, oh, what do I do now so I can fit in so that people can accept me, etc. you know. Um, uh, I don't want to ramble on, but I'm just saying uh, this, is just, uh, this, is, this is just how uh, this is, you know, you can't blame yourself, basically. It's, it's too much jujitsu to have to figure out, you know, how to handle all these other people, all these um, people that are out to mistreat you. Yeah, I, I think the balancing act that, that you know, a person who, who's on the counter-racist uh, effort, you know, immersed in that, I think just that itself, like, like I was saying, you know, that we, we, we stopped being available for the mistreatment to, to, the, to the extent that we were with the more knowledge. I'm sorry. Can Hello? I hear We can hear you. Oh, oh, God, I didn't know. But uh, I don't mean to uh, interrupt the conversation, uh, but I, I've been hearing all this stuff about abuse. Now, I am 64 years old, sir, and I have never really just taken the abuse from anyone, no white person. When I was in the third grade, a white teacher, you know, told me to be quiet. Someone hit me in the face with a spitball. And uh, I, I didn't mean to talk, and the girl hit me again, and I said, ouch. And this lady actually lunged into me. I'm in the third grade. This woman lunged into me, grabbed my dress, and ripped it. Now, I was in the third grade. I didn't have to wait for anyone to tell me what to do. And, I mean, I did my thing, and I know that she will never forget me if she's living. There is a thing, such a thing as, um, you know, you must protect yourself by any means. Then it happened again in the sixth grade. And this time it was a man. It was a man. He ripped my dress, the same girl in the third grade that threw the spitball and hit me in my face. She was in the same grade, the sixth grade with me, sitting in the back seat, mind you. So it was like history repeating itself, and she hit me really hard in my face, and I said, ouch. That man was a big, fat white man. He didn't ask any questions. He turned around. He knew it was me because I had a very distinct voice at that time. And that man lunged into me, and I jumped on that man, and my feet became like hoofs. My heels became like hoofs. And I locked it into the legs of that man and took his necktie, and he went down like Jolly the Green Giant. And so, I mean, uh, I don't understand all this stuff as abuse, and then we also have choices. 
We have choices. You know, who's going to just sit down and deliberately? I understand that there is such a thing, you know, that we're dealing with white supremacy and racism, but when is enough going to be enough? I mean, like, in my time growing up, uh, you know, this is what we were taught, you know, self-defense. But in these days, what they're teaching young young children, you know, uh, you don't defend yourself, but yet and still they're going and getting all these guns. They, in Philadelphia, they had a woman that went to school because her daughter was being bullied. And she went to school, and as she went to get her daughter, the bully wanted to start a fight. So the woman was telling her daughter to fight the bully. And they, they got this lady up on charges. But yet and still they're going and getting all these guns. So when do you say enough is enough? Because I'm not a victim. I will not be a victim. I didn't grow up being victimized. When you carry that title, that's exactly what you're going to become. You know, where there's a will, there is a way. And then there's abuse going on on the job, even with coworkers. Black people do it. I've worked with all but black people. They keep stuff going on. And then when you go on the job, you have white people, young white people. They think that they're not supposed to do the job even though they're not educated. It's a lot of problems that, that's in, in, in the workplace. But I, I have never just deliberately allowed myself to be a victim to anybody, you know, even though there have been times I've been in a position. But I've always tried to, you know, I never put myself in the position to be deliberately picked on. I'm a very peaceable person. I don't look for any trouble. I don't ask for any trouble. I'm very peaceable. But if trouble comes my way, I'm sorry. I got to handle it. Now, what do you say about that? Uh, I say that the program is almost done because uh, we have done our three hours, and this seems uh-huh. like something that could generate a lot of dialogue. Uh, one thing that I will say, this program is intended for non-white people, victims of racism, uh, the folks who say that they are not a victim of racism. I didn't I say that. Curious. I have experienced racist victims. I have oh, okay, ex- I thought, well, hang on, hang on, because I was talking. I thought that you okay. had made a statement okay. saying I'm that you're sorry. not Go a victim. On. I respect I you. Go you, on. <laughs> I thought that you had said that you're not a victim. I thought that I'd heard that you said. Do not, not deliberately allow, allow myself to be a victim. No, sir. Okay. Okay. I, I hang on a second. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I would even say with that, <laughs> I would be cautious about that sort of statement because it suggests that non-white people who are victims of racism are somehow culpable for the situation that they were in when the victimization happened. And I would say I just don't see any evidence to support that. I see a lot of non-white people who are minding their own business, being peaceful. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with hang you. On, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. The you're still, you're still that it's not hang just, on. it's not just. It's my mute button. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, you're still interrupting. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, I would be very careful about that because I've heard that sort of thing before, uh, language that suggests that non-white people are somehow culpable uh, in being victims of racism. That certainly doesn't mean that we can't make adjustments, and we should. I think Kathy Harris, she talked a lot about that this evening, about the importance of making modifications to our behavior to try to minimize, mitigate, and eliminate as much of our victimization as possible. But I think as 1804 was just saying, we are on the plantation, and this is set up to abuse, degrade, humiliate dark people, black people, non-white people, every day, all day, 24 hours a day. That's just the world in which we live. So uh, if you, you say you try to do as much as you can to not be a victim, that's yeah. great. I would 
encourage that uh, for all non-white people, but just I would be cautious uh, about using language that might suggest that non-white people are somehow culpable or allowing themselves to be victims. Uh, it's not really about allowing or giving permission to white people to abuse you. That's just what it's supposed to be. Uh, and you just try to do the best that you can as a non-white person to mitigate, minimize, eliminate being mistreated. But we are at the three-hour point. Uh, thank I guess, you for the opportunity, even though sure. I did misunderstood, but I thank you. No worries. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, Friday, Warriors Don't Cry, Melba Patillo Beals, black female. She's still around. I was even thinking it would be cool if we could get her on the program once we are done with the uh, the book session. Maybe we can get her on and, and see what she has to say with some, I guess, hindsight of 50 years or I guess it's more than 50 years now, about 50 a little more than 55 years of insight it would be cool to, to get her back on. I uh, wholeheartedly con uh, concur. Bruce Bond said that black people need to get away from that. Don't call yourself a victim. Uh, I agree <laughs> with that completely. Uh, that is the most accurate title. I would say keep that in mind at all times. Uh, if you're talking to a non-white person, you are talking to a victim of racism. They have probably been victimized in more ways than they even know. Uh, regardless I, I, I agree how, with you. I you're still interrupting. I have not been still interrupting. But I would not still interrupting. myself in the position. I'm going to have to use my mute button because uh, I'm still being interrupted. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> at any rate, as I was saying, um, the uh, yeah, I would I would encourage folks because I think white people have put that out. Uh, I have been seeing that, I've been hearing that, and I've heard Mr. Fuller say the same thing that he has been hearing white people say: "Don't call yourself a victim. Uh, that what are you doing? You're not a victim. You're a survivor." That would be true if the abuse had stopped. I would say that's totally true. Like when folks say that they're survivors of sexual abuse, that's because it's a one-time thing. It's not that they're being sexually abused every day. So yes, I would say it's totally accurate. If I was racism was done, didn't have to deal with white people anymore, absolutely. I would say I am a survivor of the system of white supremacy, but that's not true. The system is still here, is still rolling, I'm still being victimized. As long as that's true, I would say unfortunately we are still victims of racism, white supremacy. But I understand folks don't agree. And if you don't think you're a victim, that's great. If you don't want to call yourself a victim, that's great, too. You don't have to. And I would encourage folks to not be dogmatic about that either uh, in insisting that people call themselves victims. Uh, people can call themselves whatever they want. That's BGQ. Uh, you can say whatever you want. But at any rate, I at least keep it in my mind, even if I don't call people that. If they're non-white, victim of racism, white supremacy. At any rate, we will be back tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Melba Patillo Beals, Warriors Don't Cry. I will wrap things up. I will share a final segment from Miss Harris's book that I thought was uh, indicative. It, it touched on some of the things that you all were talking about uh, when the listeners were sharing uh, she wrote, a black female customs employee was enjoying her 50th birthday when her white male supervisor told her to get up and change the toner in the copy machine. Because she did not jump up right away, the supervisor commented that she was feeling her balls today, in quotes. Her coworkers would often stroll over to her desk and look her in the eyes and call her a Sambo. Like I said, 
came we kind of touched the surface. I tried to read as much as I could, but it's uh, more disgraceful, trifling, and terroristic material than you could cram into a two-hour, three-hour, even five-hour broadcast. Once again, the problem is white people, and this is what we will be dealing with until the system of white supremacy has been replaced with a system of justice. Mrs. Harris, you can check her website, KathyHarrisSpeaks.com. Again, www.KathyHarrisSpeaks.com. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the broadcast. Uh, I will just ask the creator, please aid us being as codified as we possibly can in all areas of people activity. Please aid us in being patient with all non-white people at all times, being patient with ourselves. Please help us to understand that it is vitally important to take the best care of ourselves as we possibly can, getting as much rest as we can, eating the most healthful healthful foods possible under really terrible conditions. Please help us to do everything that we possibly can to help us gather the will and ability to replace white supremacy with justice immediately. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.